Wrestling fans, and welcome to another jam-packed edition of Japanese Wrestling Classics with Roy Lusher. And boy, do I have a special treat for you today. So let's go back to the end of April, early May, earlier this year. I went to Cauliflower Alley, and obviously anyone that goes to Cauliflower Alley knows that the Destroyer is going to be there. And this was honestly like one of the things that I was looking forward to more than anything else because I obviously am a huge fan of uh, All Japan Pro Wrestling, so it was my chance to meet uh, the Destroyer. While I was there, he introduced me to his son, Kurt Beyer. <laughs> and honestly, I first started watching All Japan in 92, religiously, so I remember a year later when Kurt debuted for the company. Followed his career, remember the big retirement match with his dad and him and Baba teaming up together. And I started talking to Kurt and Dick at the show, and I felt a really close connection with Kurt. We just hit it off immediately. I started asking a lot of questions. We talked for a while about uh, All Japan, the, the training, everything whatsoever. So I remember when I got back, I asked myself, you know, I know there's a million and one shows out there. I get it. And I'm thankful for the people out there that listen to my show. You have a million things to do with your life and a million podcasts out there. And I'm thankful that you have chosen this show to listen to. I was just thinking, you know, the way that I was talking to Kurt, why don't I just put that on, on listening and on, on recording and, you know, do something with it. And obviously not just Kurt, but you know, Joel Deaton, Richard Slinger, Bill Apter, and all my upcoming guests. So let's get to it right now. I present to you my entire interview with Kurt Beyer. Um, this is something really special and something I'm really proud of. And here it goes. Here's my interview with the Destroyer's son, Kurt Beyer. Hello, wrestling fans, and welcome to another edition of Japanese Wrestling Classics with Roy Lusher, and I have a real special treat here today. I have a man who basically was kind of the influence on me to start in this show. I met him at Cauliflower Alley a couple months ago, and at that point I decided, you know what, more stories about Japanese wrestling need to get out there from a gaijin standpoint. I have on here right now Kurt Beyer, the son of the legendary destroyer Dick Beyer. Kurt, how are you doing today? Excellent, Roy. How are you doing? I'm doing amazing. Uh, so let's get in and dive right to it. Um, first of all, was it scary as a child watching your dad wrestle and get beat up, or did he assure you that everything was okay? Oh uh, well, yeah. Um, there's early on, yeah, I was I was terrified. I, <laughs> I um, he tried a lot of times to try to tell me, look, you know, I, I'm okay out there. You know, you have to know what I'm, you know, you, you have to know that I know what I'm doing out there. There's a story that I've told uh, before uh, several times about a time in L.A. when he was he was wrestling. He was main eventing there. He was wrestling Freddie Blass. He was wrestling Mr. Moto at the time. And they had a, a big thing with him and Mr. Moto. Now, Mr. Moto, Charlie Moto, is, in fact, my dad's best friend. 
or was my dad's best friend. Um, the loss of Charlie Moda was uh, devastating for my dad. It was his first really close friend to, to, to leave. And um, he's also my sister's godfather. Uh, my sister, Mona Chris, was named uh, after Moto. If she had been born a boy, <laughs> even though Moto was the <laughs> last name in Japan, she would have been named uh, Moto. But uh, it was a girl, so they had to scramble and find a new name, and they, they came up with Mona. And he's her godfather. It was her godfather. Anyway, wow. Moto and my dad were, they had a, you know, um, a series of matches uh, in L.A., and in those days, the uh, timekeeper's table was at ringside, right butt up against the ring, right against the apron of the ring. And I was allowed to come and go as I please, even at four years old. I, I grew up in the dressing rooms. I mean, I, I the, my earliest memories of life are in the dressing rooms. Big, huge wrestlers smoking cigars and drinking and smoking and playing cards and, you know, yelling for coffee and you name it. The, the locker room was my playground. And, and even when I was growing up, that was the safest place in the world for me. If any bad people wanted to get to me, they had to come through all those guys. You know, I had I had uncles that, you know, I mean, they weren't my real uncles, but I called them uncles growing up, Uncle Freddie, you know, Uncle Charlie. And uh, being in the locker room wasn't, wasn't uh, a big deal for me. But being at ringside when I was four, watching uh, Dad wrestle Charlie Moto, uh, there was, you know, Dad was a bloody mess. And Charlie Moto had uh, the mask turned around. So that was a big deal, right? The mask was turned around. Dad's all bloodied. And with that white mask, the blood just really sensational, right? You, you can see it. It's instantly visible. It doesn't disappear. Um, it doesn't wipe off because it's soaked into the mask. And um, he was blinded because the mask had been turned around. And Jerry Murdoch was the timekeeper at the time. He was also a referee. And he actually, Jerry Murdoch, years later, came to Japan, and he was a, a referee for All Japan Pro Wrestling for, for a few years. Mm -hmm. And Jerry uh, was one of those uncle figures, and uh, he looked at me, and he's just playing around. They're right in front of us. And he said, Kurt, your dad's in trouble. What are you going to do? And uh, <laughs> before he could stop me, I, I had grabbed the hammer for the bell, and I, I hopped up on the table, and Mr. Mortal wrestled in bare feet. And I... I banged his toe with the hammer as hard as I could at little four years old. And it broke his toe. And he, he, <laughs> he you know, he, and he hopped all over the ring, screamed bloody murder, let my dad go, you know, and the whole place erupted. The whole place, everybody was screaming. Everybody, half the people were laughing, I remember. And, uh, you know, about uh, five guys came and grabbed me because I was trying to crawl into the ring still, you know. And uh, I was crying and everything, and they dragged me back to the dressing room. Charlie Moto, you know, I, you know, he, he, he sold it. In hindsight, you know, he's a pro wrestler. I mean, he sold it, you know, and he, 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 he went with it, and they, you know, they finished their match anyway, and, he, you know, my dad came back to the dressing room, and, uh, well, actually, I, I have to update this. There was, the week before that match, dad was wrestling Charlie Moto, and, same, it was a similar situation. Blood was everywhere, mass was turned around. And I had, I ran from the back of the arena up the aisleway to try to get into the ring. And a bunch of people grabbed me and they dragged me back to the dressing room. And I was crying and everything. And at that time, Dad had told me, look, I, you know, you, you don't need to worry about me out there. I'm com completely okay. Trust me that I'm okay. And, and because they couldn't trust me to not try to run into the ring again, they had me sit right next to Jerry Murdoch. 
on that match, but, you know, he didn't think it was going to grab the bell, and he was trying to try to, you know, from his perspective, he was just trying to make light of it. You know, he knew that I was, you know, really concerned, and they're right in front of us. There's blood everywhere, and, you know, it looks really horrific. And, yeah, so when they came back to the dressing room after that match, uh, Dad took me aside and said, look, you know, I, I can't bring you here. I remember I was four, and I remember this scene like it was last week. I mean, it is burned in my memory as crystal clear as last week. I can describe where the locker room was. I can describe the situation, you know, where I was in the hallway. And I was in the hallway, in the back hallways, right outside the locker room door. And, you know, I was still crying. I was four. I was in tears. And Dad is trying to plead with me, like, look, you know, I can't I can't bring you here if you're going to do this, you know. And Charlie Moto came out from the dressing room, and he looked at me. He had that goatee, you know, the, the – the mustache and goatee, and uh, you know he he you know he, he said you know you you you're mad at me, and I and I said yeah I was still really mad, and he said okay you pull my beard exactly like that Kurt you go ahead and pull my beard, and he bent all the way down and he put his beard right in front of me and I pulled it I yanked on it real hard, and he went bam oh jeez boom and he <laughs> bounced off the walls and tripped over chairs and. He carried on and on, and he served the hell out of that. And I, you know, and I remember looking at him, thinking, "There's no possible way I could have caused that much damage to Uncle Charlie." I mean, he's a big, strong guy, and he finally slowed down and he gave me a look and he winked at me. It's burned in my memory. I can remember it like it was last week, and and I got it. it was that simple? Boom! It was like everything was crystal clear. I'm like, oh, oh, I get it. And and Dad looks at me. He goes, "You get it?" I'm like, "Yeah." He goes, "You okay?" I'm like, "Yeah." And it was as simple and as immediate as that. I was completely okay. After that, I didn't worry about him in the ring. I, and I got to be able to watch. You know, there's you know, you you watch wrestling. There's real, real, honest to goodness, dangerous stuff that goes on in the ring. There's mistakes that happen. There's real shoots that happen. You know, you guys get lose temper and they start shooting a little bit. You know, and you get to learn how to recognize that, even as a kid. You know when it's, you know, when that was a dangerous move or that was a mistake or, oh, they're getting pissed, they're real shooting down, you know, some of you better yeah. and cool them off. And you can, I got to I got to recognize it, but I was the only kid that I knew of. All the other wrestlers had kids, but they weren't allowed anywhere in the dressing room. I, I was, I was, I was free. Come and go as I pleased from L.A., Minneapolis, Japan, you name it. I grew up in the dressing rooms. Tell us a little bit about your own athletic background. What was your schooling and what sports did you participate in? Well, before we moved to Japan, I was, you know, a typical American kid. I played football. Uh, I was, you know, I was a Little League uh, football. I played Little League baseball. I played baseball, football, and hockey. You know, when we in Minneapolis, I played hockey. The school that we lived in, Minneapolis, they had two football fields, and in the winter, they would ice the football, both football fields over. On one field, they had uh, regulation hockey rinks, and on the other field, was just open skating for the neighborhood. I mean, I don't know any school system that does that these days, but they actually used to come out, and you know, they, they would water down the fields. They had uh, Zambonis that would come out and, and clean it. You know, football fields that were available to just the neighborhood. Anybody who wanted to come and skate could skate. So all winter long, I played hockey. When uh, spring came, you know, I played baseball in the summer. Uh, in the fall, I played football. When we moved to Japan, in my school in Japan was an international school in Tokyo. I was in seventh grade. So I was going from Akron, New York at that time, 
Um, we left Minneapolis. We went around the world for a year. You wrestled a whole bunch of different places over the course of a full year. Uh, I went to school a little bit during that year, but when we got back to the States, I uh, entered fifth grade in Akron, New York, and I uh, was there for two years. I played football in Akron, and when we went to Japan, school didn't have a football team. So I said, well, what do you got? And they said, well, we have hockey. I'm like, all right, I'll play hockey then. So I played hockey in school, and then I started wrestling. I was, it was the first time for me to, to, to wrestle. So I, I didn't have – I didn't wrestle as a little kid. I, I didn't start uh, amateur wrestling until I was in junior high and high school. Wow. Now, we're all aware of your legendary father, the Destroyer. Please tell us what kind of influence that he had on you becoming a pro wrestler. That's a really good question. My dad never pushed my dad never pushed me to play sports. He didn't push me to to go into wrestling. At no point did he ever say, "You know, son, one of these days you're going to become a pro." Never, never. And he didn't push me to play sports. I was actually growing up much more interested in music. I was interested in music. I was interested in theater, and I surfed. I was a surfer. I, I skateboarded and surfed after high school. That was it. I was a skinny, and you won't believe it now, but I was a, a tall, skinny, long-haired surfer who, you know, who also wrestled and played hockey. And he, he, he wanted me to just be good at anything I wanted to be good at. And it wasn't until when I was a senior in high school, I, it was my last year. Amateur wrestling in Japan is, you know, in the international system. The weight classes, when I was in high school, the top three classes were heavyweight, going backwards from heavyweight. Uh, heavyweight, 180, 168, and I think it went down to 158, 148, and down 135, and then all the lightweight, all the way down to 101. They, they didn't have they, – they, they literally jumped 168, 180, and then it was unlimited uh, heavyweight. And that, that, that was, those were the top three classes. And, I mean, we didn't have a lot of 300-pound guys. We didn't have anybody. Uh, I was one of the bigger guys at 178. I was one of the bigger wrestlers in our league. And we, as an international school, the leagues that we um, had were all international schools in Japan, American schools and international schools. So we were part of the um, all of the base schools in Japan. So the, the Army base, the Navy base, the Air Force base, you know, Zama, Yokosuka, Yokota, um, Misawa, all these different bases around Japan plus other international schools uh, in Japan, were part of our league. It was the Kanto Plains League. It was the Kanto region of, of, of Tokyo. And throughout, throughout the school year, that was our league. And then every year, there's a Far East tournament. But all of those schools uh, in Japan, Guam, Philippines, Korea, Hong Kong, uh, they all come together. Uh, for a massive tournament, so it's the, it's the equivalent of our all-state, I would say. I can't I can't equate it to the nationals just because the number of participants can't can't be compared to nationals, but it would be like winning states. And the uh, basketball is held in Hong Kong. Wrestling in those days was held in Japan. So at Yokosuka, uh, took uh, a huge airplane hangar, and they had ten wrestling mats that lined inside the hangar, and they had uh, stands. Uh, seating stamps uh, that went the length of the hangar, and it's a two-day tournament. And before my senior year, at the start of my senior year, Dad asked me, "Do you want help this year?" Because I I was not um, I was a B-level wrestler, and I I did well. I won some, I lost some. You know, uh, I wasn't the go-to guy uh, on my team. There was another guy who 
his his name was uh, Chris Odermatt. Chris Odermatt um, is uh, was a black belt in judo. Uh, he was a shorter guy, stocky, uh, low center of gravity, super strong guy, great athlete, and uh, he was a stronger wrestler. So uh, if the other team's strong person was at heavyweight, Chris wrestled heavyweight, if the, and I wrestled 180. And if the other guy's stronger guy was the 180 guy, then Chris would wrestle 180, and I would go heavyweight. Wow. So uh, I wanted to... All I wanted out of the Far East was I wanted to medal. I wanted to medal in the Far East. I wanted to at least hit something um, my senior year, and I was shooting for a bronze. I just wanted to medal. And so Dad said, okay, if you want my help, I will help you. The start of the season, now he traveled a lot. He was on the road. So he was he would be on the road for, man, my whole life. My whole life, Dad would be on the road. He'd be gone for two, three, four weeks at a time, and then he would be back. He'd be off for a week or two weeks. And my dad defined quality time before that even became a yuppie term. I mean, he would come back, and when he was back in town, we had 100% of his attention. He played ball with us. There wasn't any father in the neighborhood, in any neighborhood I ever lived in, that played with the neighborhood kids. My dad was the only dad. He would grab all the kids. When we were in Minneapolis, he grabbed all the kids, and we'd go to the ball field, and we'd play ball. It would be my dad and our dog against me and all my friends. And we had, we had a really good dog. Dad would pitch to us, and we'd hit it, and the dog would go tear after the ball, and he'd meet my dad at first base or second base or wherever it was and give him the ball. My dad would beat us every time, and we'd be crying. It's not fair. You got, you got Bessie. You got the dog. <laughs> and when it, was, when it was his turn to hit, he would hit pop-up flies or grounders. He always hit. You know, it was an exercise for us. You know, he didn't want to go out and beat us. He wanted to go out and you know, teach us how to, how to catch a fly ball, how to catch a grounder, you know. <clears throat> None of the other fathers played with us. So it wasn't unusual for him to be gone at long stretches at a time. In fact, it would have been weird for me. I never understood my friends that had nine-to-five fathers. Like, <laughs> your dad's home every day when you get home after work. Like, I couldn't live like that, you know. And uh, it was weird for me to have that kind of a, a parent. And so he was on the road, you know, the first week of school. And I've heard the first practice that I had with my dad, uh, this, he, sent, he sent a message to the school secretary. He said, you know, this is in Tokyo, so she's Japanese, she's working in the office, and, and she comes running up the hallway, and she's got this little piece of paper that's a message from my father, the middle of the day. And, and, and she goes, you know, Kurt, you know, I, I have a message for you. It's for your father, but I'm not sure I understand it. And I said, sure, what is it? And all it said was, don't shower. That was it. That was the message. Don't shower. <laughs> and, and, and I started laughing. I, and she goes, do you know what this means? I said, yeah, it means that after I get done with wrestling practice today, I have wrestling practice with my father afterward. And sure enough, as soon as we were done with wrestling practice, in about 6.30 or so, he came by the school, picked me up, when we drove down the road, and not far from my school, you know, maybe 15 minutes down the road, Jumbo Tsuruta had his house, and behind his house, on his property, he had a, a small barn with the wrestling ring in it. And wow. Jumbo said, yeah, you could go in there anytime you want. So I would go after school and go train in Jumbo Tsuduta's gym with my dad. Sometimes Jumbo would come out and work with us, but most of the time it was just me and my dad. And he wow. would go over this move or that move and things that my coaches weren't, you know, weren't teaching us. So all the coaches, when they're teaching you, all the coaches are looking at what the other coaches are doing and what this coach is doing. So 
you know, here's the move and here's the counter. Well, everybody knows the move and everybody knows the counter. And I, I got to train with my dad and get moves that nobody had seen before. Wow. You know, stuff like that. So I ended up the season um, uh, with a pretty good record. And when I went to the Far East tournament that year, I ended up walking away with a gold medal. Awesome. That was huge. And that and, and, and what was really like is like it's like a I'm telling you it's like a movie. Like I, I was the underdog going into the to the uh to that tournament. Uh I didn't have as many guys in my weight class as the other weight classes. Heavyweights rarely do. Like middleweights that are like, you know, you know, thirty guys in that weight class. I had maybe a dozen guys, but my dad was on the road during the Far East tournament and the, the finals when it comes down to the finals, as I whittled through the two days, it's a two day tournament. Ten mats going morning to night, seven o'clock in the morning, seven o'clock at night, both days. And as they whittle it down to here's the round robin and here's the finals, they it, it goes down to two mats. And they get rid of the mats and they circle all of those stands around those two mats. And there's only two matches going on at a time. And if one of the matches is a gold medal match, then the other the other mat is silent. And my dad was on the road, and it just happened that the uh, All Japan Pro Wrestling bus was passing right by Yokosuka where we were wrestling. Dad knew that I was, this is an honest to God truth. Dad, dad knew it was the Forest Tournament, so he convinced the bus driver to swing by and let him off at the base, and he had somebody at the base give him a lift from the gate. Now, this is, you know, decades before 9-11, right? So they, yeah. they, they were a lot less, uh, cautious at the gates, and everybody knew who my dad was, you know, and they, and he came in to the, um, to the airplane, into the hangar where they were having the tournament, right as I was taking the mat for my gold medal match. That's when he walked in. He walked in as I was taking the mat to the gold medal match, and he stood there with my team, and watched me win the gold, and then left. And I didn't know he was there. He left. He watched me win the gold, and he was gone. Right. And and so I mean. I win the gold, I get my hand raised, the whole place explodes, blah, 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 congratulations, you know, my team's diving on me, blah, blah, blah. I go back and my team is like, dude, your father was here, was just here. And, you know, in the days, there's no cell phone, right? I don't have any way of getting a hold of dad. And, uh, so I, I, um, I didn't get a hold of him until like way later that night, because I was allowed, uh, to go out and party with my friends until, you know, two o'clock in the morning in those days. You know, so we got done with the tournament, got back to downtown Tokyo, and then we all went out and partied. And I called Dad, and I said, well, you know, how come, how come you didn't stick around? And Dad, Dad said, I don't, I didn't want to, I didn't, he felt like he would um, take away some of my um, recognition if he was there. Mm-hmm. He goes, that was your moment. You know, that's your moment that you deserve to have that moment all to yourself. And I was like, dude, you know how they get there. But a better moment if you were there, what do you mean? If that ever happens again, you don't leave. You stay right there. He's like, all right. So, but yeah, that was the only time he helped me get into that. And then, you know, years later, you know, dad's name in Japan, and I don't know if I'm going off on too, too many tangents for you, but dad's name in Japan is really big. You know that. We all know yeah. that. But a lot of people don't understand how big. Like, the 1963 match with Ricky Dozan, he had three matches. And the first match, he wins. The second match, Ricky Dozan wins. And the third match, it was a draw. And then right after that third match, you know, tragically, Ricky Dozan was stabbed and later died from his wounds. 
Yep. Um, and so Dad was the last person to wrestle him. Well, that second match, that rematch, Dad beats Ricky Dozan, and the rematch was watched by 70 million people. It was the single highest-rated commercial television event in history. Yes. And, I mean, there was 70 million people in Japan watched it. This, you know, 63, when this occurred, not everybody in Japan had a TV. Not everybody had a TV in their house. So there's pictures of Tokyo Station, which is like Grand Central Station in New York. Tokyo Station officials put TVs on scaffolding throughout the station so salarymen coming home from work could stop at Tokyo Station and watch the rematch with the destroyer Mickey Dozen. Honest to God truth, 300,000 people came to Tokyo Station to watch this match. It was huge. And then with Ricky Dozen's loss, Bad's place in Japan history was solid. It was just, it just solidified. He was the, the last wrestler to wrestle Ricky Dozan. It was the greatest match ever kind of thing as far as, as far as ratings were concerned. And then in 1970, when we moved up, uh, 72, when we moved over to Japan, Baba, after Ricky Dozen left, it left the organization. There's Toyota Bordy, there's Giant Baba, there's Antonio Inoki, and basically the rivalries were was between Antonio Inoki and Giant Baba, you know, who was the top dog. And, you know, they decided to split. And, and Baba uh, formed All Japan Pro Wrestling, and Inoki formed New Japan Pro Wrestling. And they both asked Dad to come and wrestle for them, and Dad didn't have, you know, any favor. He didn't favor one or the other. He just felt that with the team of wrestlers that were with All Japan, that he would have um, a, a, a better um, experience or, or whatever, for lack of a better word, at All Japan Pro Wrestling. So he went with Janet Baba. And we moved to Japan right down the street from NTV Studios. It'd be like when we got off the plane at 72 as a family, it was paparazzi everywhere, the Japanese sports press, everybody was there at the, at the airport. And we moved to the neighborhood. Um, it was right down the street from uh, NTV, which is like right, living right down the street from NBC. Yeah. And there was a show, a comedy show, very, very similar in format to Saturday Night Live uh, called Uwasano Channel. It was a Friday night primetime show, 10 to 11. It was a live broadcast. They had, you know, different guest hosts, different musical guests, a very similar format to Saturday Night Live, and then a core group of comedians that made up the rest of the show. And it's not exactly like Saturday Night Live, but it was the same sort of concept. Different people every week, different guests, different people to sit in with the skits, and then, uh, you know, different musical guests every week. And they said, um, and it was at, you know, lower ratings. It was at the bottom of the ratings. And they said, hey, well, why don't we – you know, the destroyer lives down the street. Let's bring him on as a guest host. And they're like, he doesn't speak Japanese. And how are they going to work with that? But they said, ah, we've got nothing to lose. Let's bring him on. And the ratings spiked huge. And they were like, okay, well, you know, let's scramble and make him a regular. So NTV, which is also the network that All Japan Pro Wrestling was being broadcast on, mm-hmm. worked out an agreement with Uwasano Channel that my dad would be a regular on the show. His primary responsibilities would be wrestling. And on the days that they had a match, well, he would be at the match. But on the days that they didn't have a match, he would be on the show. And uh, and the show went on to become the number one show in Japan. And it, I mean, it was crazy. They had like a 46 share. 46. Seinfeld had a 12 at its peak. Now, granted, this is the days before cable. You know, there was five channels on TV in Japan. Yeah. And, then, you know, so anybody who wasn't getting double-digit ratings was in serious trouble. But a 46 share is huge. 
he wasn't that he was he was one of the stars of the show, but it wasn't because it was that last little spice that they needed to make the show work. The star was clearly Wada uh, Akipo, a, 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 a woman who was a singer, but also had this great. She was a great comedic talent, and 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 the interaction between her and my dad, and the interaction between her and the other cast members was just fantastic. She was the star of the show. And and that was that last spice and a last little bit of getting people to, A, check it out, and then, oh, there's this show, and it became the number one show. It was that last little spice that they needed. And so growing up later on, when I was out of college working, I likened Dad's popularity in, in Japan to John Wayne. Dad's pop it's a very good comparison because the older you are, the more awesome John Wayne is, right? You know, if you're over 60, oh, my God, John Wayne is the man. Holy cow. He, he's an icon. He's part of the culture. He's part of the. He's part of everything. John Wayne is everything. And then as you go down, and there's people in their 40s, people in their 30s, you hit people in their 20s, uh, they might know John Wayne, who John Wayne is, but they've never seen a movie. Get somebody in high school, they don't even know what the name is. And the same is true in Japan. The older the person is, the more awesome the destroyer is. And, you know, people who remember, you know, I know people that watched the match when they were kids between Ricky Bells and they were a little kid, in, you know, in 63. So people that are, you know, 60 and 70, it's a, it's an unbelievable, you know, level of, of appreciation that they have for my dad. So when I was working, imagine John Wayne's son being asked time and again, how come you're not an actor like your dad? How come you're not an actor like your dad? And that's what I grew up with. I was 6'4". I weighed 200 pounds. I was in pretty good shape in those days. Again, hard to remember, or imagine rather. You know, I, I got that, and um, I, I got asked that all the time. I completely know what you're talking about. Like at, at my work, uh, occasionally I'll get someone from Japan that's coming in that needs help with their cell phone because they need to get a, a international or a, a U.S.-based plan, and I sometimes show them pictures from my phone of like current guys and stuff like that, like Okada Tanahashi, you know, whatever. You know, whatever. But when I show them people like Inoki and your dad, their eyes will light up and they're like, oh, very famous, you know. So I, I absolutely understand what you mean about that, you know. It's like part of the – Yeah, like the you know, and, and, and the older they are, the bigger the reaction. Yes, absolutely. You know? I mean, when I – and I didn't, I didn't decide to be, get into wrestling until late in life, right? I mean, I, I was – I, I I was 30 when I went into the business, 30. Mm-hmm. And I, I sometimes shrug it off as I had a midlife crisis early. I, I, I was making a lot. I was making good money in those days in Japan. I was making over $100,000 a year in my early 20s in those days. Called my dad from Tokyo and said, I want to be a pro wrestler. And it, what, what preceded that was a conversation I had with, with my, my niece, who's technically my little cousin, but I was calling my niece. And I was giving her the you can be anything you want in life speech. And she asked me point blank, you know, are you doing what you wanted in life? And that was a pretty unbelievable question for such a tiny little girl. <laughs> and uh and the answer was no. I was working for an ad agency in Tokyo and I was I was the I was the director of the agency. I'd been a writer for years. I worked for the newspaper, I worked for the Omiuri. I was a writer page editor and then I transitioned from uh from uh, print media over to advertising, and um, I, I did enjoy my job, but that wasn't my dream job, you know. 
And uh, I only ever wanted to be three things in life. If, if I was that little kid and somebody said, what do you want to be when you grow up? I wanted to be a rock star, a pilot, or a professional wrestler. Those were the three pipe dreams when I was growing up. Yeah. And so I set out in my late 20s, because it wasn't 30 when I mean, I asked her in my late 20s, and I tried to uh, go to flight school. And I was told I was too old for flight school, for, for the military. I would have had to, you know, it's a long story. So the short version is I was too old um, to uh, go into the military for flight school. And then, uh, you know, I, I, I play guitar, I sing songs, blah, 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 I like music. And, you know, and my family and my friends ask me to sing all the time. But I don't think I could get anybody to actually pay me to sing. So <laughs> a rock star is out, you know. And, you know, I certainly can't sell out Shea Stadium. So that's that's gone. And and I and I was like, you know, I kept getting this thing in the back of my head, you know, I, I got to try wrestling. I have to get it out of my system. I have to I have to at least try it. Mm-hmm. And so I called my dad from Japan and I said, "Hey dad, I I got to talk to you. I, I want to be a pro wrestler and I need you to train me." And I thought in my head, you know in the movies when they they have the scene that you think that you're going to get, yeah, you know, and the scene that you actually get. My dad, I thought this. my dad was going to be, oh, my son, my oldest son, my chonan. Chonan means uh, oldest son in Japan. And, uh, and, and it's almost like a title. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a word of distinction because oldest son has a lot of meaning in Japan. So I thought he was going to say, oh, my, my son, you know, my, uh, I've been waiting for this day my whole life. You know, you've made me such a happy father. Yes, of course, I will train you. I'll teach you everything I know. And, no, that wasn't the, the, the reaction I got. The reaction I got was he said, you're nuts, and he hung up on me. <laughs> and and, and I, I didn't expect it, you know. And I was like, whoa, you know. So I called him back, and I was like, no, I, I, I want He goes, no, he goes, you're an idiot. You know, you, 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 know, you, you, you think on it long and hard, but, you know, I think you're an idiot. And he hung up on me again. So skip ahead, it was probably oh, a few months after that. He was uh, in in August. He was in Japan for the summer action series because even though he was uh, semi retired, um, he was still wrestling in the summer action series every August in Japan. He was over there for the summer action series, and I had uh, a meeting with him, and it was a tearful meeting. I was like, I have to do this. It's something I have to do. It's in me to do this, and I don't care if I fail miserably. I have to get it out of my system. I can always go back to doing what I was doing before. I need to do this. So I said, okay. Right. And my, everybody, my boss in Japan, everybody, everybody was supportive of it. My boss for the ad agency, the early days of the internet, he was like, okay. He goes, this is a great thing for you. I think you should do this, but I still need you to help us with writing because there was a lot of ad copy. A lot of the, a lot of the stuff that you see for Japanese, uh, products, all the advertisements, brochures, television commercials for Japanese products, you name it, whether it's uh, Honda, you know, Iowa, Sony, those are actually produced in Japan by, by U.S. and British writers and narrators and voiceovers. They're actually produced in Japan and then distributed to the different markets internationally. They don't always use uh, U.S. ad agencies when they're doing um, um, ads. So our company is one of those boutique industries in Japan that, uh, boutique uh, ad agency in the industry in Japan that uh, that did work for for a lot of different mega house uh, agencies. So they would get the project, and the powerhouse agencies would uh, 
farm it out to subcontract it out to companies like ours. And so he gave me a laptop. My boss gave me a laptop and taught me how to use this newfangled thing called a modem and a portable modem. And then he taught me how to actually wire into the uh, – if the hotel has a, 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 an RJ45 uh, phone jack, the, the phone jacks that we're – you know, we see now, well, back in those days, a lot of times the phone lines were hardwired into the wall. You know, some of the more modern ones you know, had, had jacks. And if had a jack, then you can unscrew it and you can pl- plug this and you can jack it in that and blah, blah, blah. It was um, a whole process. but And it was all MS-DOS. This was years before Windows. And I would download files and I would do all the writing. And that paid my bills while I was training. I was wow. able to continue on with the writing. Um, it was because my, my boss in Japan is Japanese. Uh, he was 100% behind this effort. And uh, Odyssey, Odyssey Incorporated was my uh, the ad agency I worked with. And my boss's name was Fuji Ishikawa. Without him, I wouldn't have been able to make it because I wasn't able to work, you know, a regular job and train for wrestling uh, full-time. You know, that, that just wasn't going to be feasible. But being able to download these, you know, different bits of, uh, of English language ad copy and stuff. I was able to pay my bills uh, while I was training. So I wow. left Japan, came back to the States, and I started training with my dad. Now, there were hundreds of places to train to be a pro wrestler all over the world. What made you choose the All Japan Dojo? Well, I, I that wasn't the original plan. <laughs> Uh, the original plan, I was supposed to go out uh, to Oregon and wrestle for Don Owen. Don, are, are you familiar with Don Owen? Very much, yes. He was uh, okay. there for, like, him, Sandy Scott, I believe, or, or I forgot yeah. his name, but Sandy Barr. Yeah, they, they yeah so Don him. Owen owned that territory for decades, decades. Yeah. And so Dad called Don Owen and said, look, and my, my, my son is uh, getting into wrestling. I'm training him here. He needs a place to go once he gets done training. And Don Owen said, I'll take you. And I was, I was going to take me as a tag team with um, a guy from uh, uh, another guy from Buffalo, New York. His name is Blake Bednarz, uh, B-E-D-N-A-R-Z. Blake uh, was a starting guard for Syracuse University as well, um, and my dad knew him from Syracuse University. And Blake came up to my dad after his football. He Blake played a season with the Buffalo Bills. Um, he was he was drafted by the Buffalo Bills after Syracuse. He played a season with the Buffalo Bills and blew out his knee, and he lost his he lost his spot on the Bills squad. And then he, you know, because of the Syracuse Alumni Association with my dad, they asked my dad, "Hey, you know, can you train me for wrestling?" And this was right around the time that my dad, you know, agreed to train me for wrestling. So dad said, "Okay, I'll train you both at the same time." We set up uh, a ring at a local gym. Uh, it was on the opening day when we got dad doing dad. It was a, the, the Buffalo Press was there, the Destroyer Professional Wrestling Academy's opening in Buffalo with Kurt Byer, Blake Bednarz, and Rich Byer was my little brother. He was going to go through it too. And Ilio DiPaolo was there for the opening, the opening ceremony of the school. And that was hilarious. It was a hilarious first opening day. I, I grew up in this business. I wrestled amateur, but I never actually did any of the wrestling moves. Hard to believe that growing up, I never body slammed anybody. I never took a backdrop. I only knew, I only knew amateur wrestling moves. And at the opening, at the opening ceremony, this opening in front of all the press, that's introducing. Here's the three students that I'm going to train. My son, Kurt Bauer, I come out. Blake Bednar, and then my brother, Rich. And Rich comes to run out and get into the ring. 
and Ilya is standing in the ring, and my brother gets up to the ropes. He's on the other side of the ropes. Ilya reaches over the ropes, picks my brother up, puts him over his head, and body slams him in the middle of the ring. Nobody knew it was coming. And my brother didn't know how to take a fall or anything. We didn't know anything about anything. And Richie hits the mat, and he goes, bam! And it knocked the wind out of him. <laughs> He's like, oh, 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 I, can't, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. In front of all the cameras, in front of, it was like the best promo shot ever. Like, for all the people out there who think it's all just one big puff head, you know, it's all a big poof poof, you know, here here it is. We're going to body slam. Billy <laughs> DePaul is going to body slam one of these pro wrestlers or pro wrestling candidates right now. Let's see his expression. It was hilarious. It was really great. And I trained there, and the intent was to train with that, and then Dean Malenko and Joe, Joe Malenko. Mm-hmm. They were they were tag team. The Malenkos wrestled for All Japan Pro Wrestling, and I knew them from All Japan. You know, because even when I was working there, I would still see Dad and hang out with the boys and do all that stuff. You know, I mean, I, I knew all the guys from you know the dressing rooms and fan even while I was living and working there. And so Dean and Joe Malenko come over, and they said, you know, Joe said. Or Dean said, look, you know, if Kerr wants to come down and train with us uh, in Tampa, you know, send him on down when you're done with him. And he did. So we finished up at, well, we did, you know, six months with my dad. And then dad said, okay, you know, I've taught you all the moves. Now you need to go down to Florida and train with the Malenkos. They'll teach you some new moves and they'll teach you how to work with different people. You guys are just too used to working with each other. You need to learn how to work with people that you've never seen before. And that's what the business is all about. And so they went yeah. down to, to, to Malenko, and Dean was just, uh, and, his, and his father, Boris, was just amazing. They, they brought us in. They, they trained us for free. They, they donated their time to us. They didn't charge us a penny. Uh, we worked out for them for a few weeks. And then I uh, came back to Buffalo, was training more in Buffalo, and we were getting, Blake, Blake and I were getting set to go to Don's. We were all set. We were booked, you know. Vince McMahon. Uh, dumped his tapes in Don's territory. Don ended up losing his TV contract uh, over that. Wow. And he called and he said, look, I'm, I'm, I'm going out. I just lost the TV contract. It doesn't look good. Uh, we're, we're, we're looking at closing a business. So I, there's no sense in the boys coming out. And uh, I didn't have any place to go. And there was no other territory to go. And that was my dad's original, that was a primary concern. It was part of his original rejection was, I can train you, but there's nowhere for you to go. Anybody can teach you how to do the moves. They teach you how to make the fall. They teach you how to, to work a match. They, they, you know, But they can't teach you how to work in front of people. And that's something that you're only going to learn getting in front of people. At the end of the day, you know, and that's the problem with a lot of these backyard guys. I mean, everybody does it, you know, the, the independent, you know, the independent groups and the backyard guys. The only people that are coming to watch that are their friends. They're yeah. a bunch of friends in the audience. There's no people that are coming there because they want to see these guys work because they're not able. They don't have the ability to create that draw, to create that attention, like, wow, I want to watch that guy. And even the WWF today suffers. I think it all sucks. I'll say it out loud. You know, they don't have any characters. Think of all the characters. They all look like cookie cutters. They got the cookie cutter body. They all have the juiced up steroid freaking monkey body. Every single one of them. They all have the long hair, and even the heels are, uh, even the baby face act like heels. There isn't a clear baby face or isn't a clear heel. Uh, and I get the whole, you know, audience is smartened up and all of that, but they're still, they're all cookie cutter. They're all the same. 
And there isn't any character. You go back and look at the character, you know, Dick the Bruiser, Crusher, Abdullah the Butcher, the Sheik, my dad. You take the two, I think the two most famous masked wrestlers in the world are my dad and Mil Mascaris. You can get two more, more different masked wrestlers than those guys. You know, dad's body, and it was like farm boy strong. It was like a dock worker with, with a very simple mask on. Mil Mascaris had that chiseled, you know, V-shaped chest, you know, shaved chest, you know, tan, beautiful tone, flashy mask, you know, very ornate uh, uh, tights and everything. You know, two diabolically uh, opposed uh, characters, but they were characters, instantly recognizable. Now, you, you have to be a wrestling fan to be able to distinguish between the guys in the ring. And Fritz Von Erich, and not all the guys had steroid bodies. In fact, nobody did. They were just big guys, you know. And and so that's that's part of, you know, there wasn't any place to go. There wasn't any, so part of that, you know, there was a WWF, there was Don Owens, and there was a WCW. Then I did drop my tape, you know, from this, that, and the other at the WCW at one point from Japan. I was trying to get back into the States. I, I took a break uh, from all Japan. I drove down. I dropped my tape at the WCW. Um, and and I also tried out for the WWF, but they were like, "Hey, go on the juice, and we can't use you." They're flat out, flat out right to me. Go on the juice, and we can't use you. So I, I didn't, you know, I did, I didn't go on. If I had gone on the juice, my dad would have killed me, you know. And and he was right, you know. Yeah, I didn't have a multi-million dollar wrestling career, but I'm still standing. There's a lot yeah. of guys that aren't, you know. And the uh, and I was I didn't have any place to go. So with no place to go. Because the ultimate goal is to wrestle in Japan. I was going to wrestle for Don Owen in the States long enough to get good enough that I could wrestle in Japan for all Japan Pro. But without that real-life experience, I was still a green boy. So Baba said, yeah, you can send him here, but we're going to send him to our dojo because we're not bringing him over as a talent. If we're going to train him, then we're going to train him our way. So he's going to enter the dojo, and that's how I got to the dojo. It was not a plan. That was a that was the last my last choice. It was my last chance. The All uh-huh. Japan Dojo was my last chance. Thank God it was my last chance. The Gaijins that came out of that dojo, if I'm correct, only three Gaijins graduated. That would be you, Slinger, and a uh, Mossman, correct? Yeah, I consider us to be the only Gaijins there. Before that, there were a couple of guys. There was uh. Uh, Haysink, um, Antoine Haysink, he was a judo master from Europe who, who did go there, but he never did the full stint. He didn't start at the bottom and just work his way out. He did not. He, he went in and they were just training, training him to be a main eventer. And he washed out, you know, like a lot of guys think, oh, I'm a big star in judo, so I'm going to go be a pro wrestler. He washed out. Like Wajima, you know, I'm a big superstar in sumo. So I'll just go to wrestling. And dad, this is your dad talking about Lajima. You know, nice guy, but he, he, he was like, that. dad worked for two weeks on a headlock. Just a freaking headlock. A headlock, eye up, bounce off the ring, and a tackle. Just a headlock and a tackle. For two weeks, that's all he taught him. Dad, he said it when we were in the ring the first day. He was like, here's how you want to do a headlock. You got it? Okay, chest out, boom, boom, boom. Okay, now you're going to go off the rope. You're going to give him a tackle, boom. This is how you take a tackle. Okay, you got this. We worked on a headlock and a tackle. Headlock and tackle. Headlock, tackle, get it again. Get the guy off, put him in the headlock again. That, 
We, we did that at the end of the first day, and he goes, congratulations, gentlemen, you learned, you learned more of your first day than what Juma did the whole time. He said, yeah, for me. <laughs> so, yeah, so I, I went to, when I went to All Japan's uh, dojo, it was only because I didn't have any place to go. There was no other territories that were running enough shows that could pay you to be a wrestler. There were wow. independent guys, but you know how the independent circuit is. Oh, Everybody's got a real job, and they, they wrestle because it's a hobby for them. You know, they'd like to make it to the show, but to them, that's it. Vince McMahon knows everything. And, you know, in any other industry, what Vince McMahon did would have been considered um, dumping. It would have, he would have been brought up on antitrust charges years ago. You can't go to market a product at a low price for the specific purpose of driving your competition out. That's called dumping. That's what we accused the Japanese of doing during the 70s with their cars. You're dumping, you're dumping, your, your, your cars are, are, you know, uh, half the price of the American cars. You're just trying to drive the Americans out of business. You know, and, and if, it was, if it was the widget industry, the owner of the widget industry would have been brought up on charges. But because it was the pro wrestling, you know, you know who, the people in the government are like, well, it's pro wrestling. Well, yeah. This process, so that ignorance that they had at the governmental level, they handed Vince McMahon uh, a billion-dollar industry on a silver platter. He was going around to territories that had TV contracts, like Minnesota and, and Oregon and Don Owens, and systematically around the country. Remember the Saturday afternoon broadcasts? He would give their tapes. He would give his tape for free. He left. He had was it was uh, you know it was a nice it was a nicely produced uh, program. He would have the tapes for free. And, yes, we have, you know, our own advertising because they learned that they were making money on, on pay-per-view. And mm -hmm. the Saturday afternoon broadcast had all the jobbers. It was the superstars against the jobbers. It's some 90-second squash match. And in those days, even the uh, announcers, they weren't even talking about the match. The match would be going on in the background, you know, and uh, Johnny B. Babbitt beating, beating the crap out of some jobber in the background, and they'd be talking about the upcoming pay-per-view. Yep. You know, and not saying anything about the match, you know, and that was all just by giving the, like, they go into Oregon and they go to the TV station and they say, okay, you have a market demand for wrestling content, and you're paying Don Owen X amount for, for the, his show. You can have our show for free. We even edited it in such a way that you can just use a plug and play, you just take the tape, and you can sell the advertisement. All that is yours. All we want to do is get our stuff on the air, and oh, by the way, we have some, we plug our own stuff. Yes, admittedly, we do that. But you get wrestling content on your TV for free. And every single station across the United States canceled their wrestling contract with the existing promoters. Now, some people will go, oh, well, that was marketing genius. And I said, well, that, it, it, it was a nice, it, there's a certain amount of genius to that, but it's also illegal. It's also, in my opinion, illegal when you're, when you're, Putting something in a market with the specific purpose of driving that person out of business at a lower price because you know it's not free anymore, right? Yep. <laughs> They're not broadcasting their stuff for free anymore. They're not giving the stations their free, uh, that, that show for free. So they're making money on Monday Night Raw or whatever they got. They're also making money on pay-per-view. But they, they took over the industry and created a monopoly or actually an oligopoly because the WCW was around at the time. So Turner, Turner had WCW, and, and Vince had the WWF. Now, take us back, you know, tell us some of your duties while you were in the dojo. I mean, what was a typical day like there? 
Yeah, so that was uh, my first day in the dojo. Now, mind you, I was coming from the States. I, you know, I, I thought I knew everything. I trained with Dad for months, and then I went down, and I trained with the Malenkos. And I walked into the Japanese dojo, and you have to be there early enough. You have to clean the dojo. So you, know, you get there at 10 o'clock in the morning, and for, you know, 30 minutes or so, you clean. You clean the mat. You clean the floors. You sweep. You do all the cleaning chores. Once that's all done, then you change into your wrestling boots and you get all that ready. Practice starts at 11. It's like 11 to 2-ish. It was a three-hour, three or four-hour practice. We would start off uh, stretching, but it was serious, crazy, insane stretching. You know, guys, you know, you know, stretching and pushing you all the way down to your knee kind of thing, and uh, that goes on for a while. Then we do sit-ups, uh, hiking, hiking, I don't know what it is in English, uh, back extensions, push-ups. So... 1,600 sit-ups in sets of 100 or 150. So it, was, it wasn't like we're doing 1,600, like counting from one all the way up to 1,600. We did sets of 100 or 150. It would be like leg raises, crunches, sit-ups. Leg raises, crunches, sit-ups. So it would be 100, one right after the other, one right after the other. It might be like a five-second break, but then we're doing another 100, and then we're doing another 100, and then we're doing another 100. We added all up. We did about 1,600 sit-ups every day. And then right after the sit-ups, we did 500 back extensions. So you, uh, in sets, again, in sets of 50 or 100. In sets of back extensions were in sets of 50. So we would go off the mat. Our feet would be, we'd be lying, we would lie on our stomachs on the mat, uh, up to our waist off of the mat. And a guy would be sitting on our ankles in the back. And we would bend down, touch the floor, and then, uh, and then come all the way back up with our back. And we would do that 50 times, switch, you do 50, we do that 10 times each. That was 500 of those. And then we do about 1,200 push-ups. Again, in sets of 100, 150, all kinds of different types of push-ups. Um, we would start usually with 20 sets of 20 off the blocks. So we would do um, our feet on a chair with um, those, you know, the hand blocks, you know, the, the push-up blocks. So we would do 20 sets of 20. That's 400 right off the bat. And then we would do uh, things like walking on your hands and doing other push-ups and push-ups over here and uh, walking your hands to the other side of the dojo, do push-ups over there and watch back and, you know, you name it, all kinds of different poses, rolling push-ups, you know. We'd, when you when you counted it all up, it was uh, about 1,200 push-ups. And this is daily? Daily. Wow. Now, nobody, nobody could, uh, that's before we even start practice. That's all warm-up. That's a warm-up to practice. And then, and then bridging, 10 minutes of neck bridging. So push-ups, back extensions, uh, sit-ups, and, and, and bridging, uh, neck bridging, about 10 minutes of neck bridging. That was all considered warm-up, and then practice would start. Now, nobody could do it. I mean, I, I couldn't – I thought I was in good shape when I went in there, but I, I couldn't do, you know, I could do a few hundred sit-ups, so I couldn't do 1,600. But you, you have to do it to failure. You have to do it until you can't do it anymore. And you have to show that you're trying. That's all – I was really lucky that the uh, sensei in the dojo was Kobashi Kenta, who is, in my opinion, probably one of the greatest wrestlers Japan has ever had. He's a great, unbelievably good, talented wrestler. They should have made him a superstar. He's a tall, really good-looking guy. They they could have worked that. Um, and, the, and he was a champion wrestler, and he was good, but he could have been the guy. He, I was lucky because he was really fair. He did every push-up. He did every sit-up. He did every back extension with us every day, and he was the sensei. He wasn't just sitting on his ass pointing his finger saying, do this and do that. He did it with us. He did it every day with us. Wow. 
And then after after neck breaking, practice would start. We said, okay, now we're going to do practice bump training, how to take a fall. And we, we would, you know, we would do anywhere from three to 600 bumps a day, every day. We would do, you know, I, there, there were days you would go, okay, 100 body slams, skirt you up. And, you know, you, you, you got to take 100 in a row. We didn't have air conditioning in the dojo. I moved over in the summer. So in the dojo, it was hotter than hell. It's Tokyo heat, Tokyo humidity. And, you know, and I mean, I, I know I sound like some old guy. When I was a kid, it was 50 miles in the snow uphill both ways. No, this is serious stuff. We, there's enough guys that can attest to the dojo heat and, and how hot it was in that dojo. And it was, it was a, the dojo we were in was, uh, was actually a karate dojo at night. And the wrestling ring was set up on the karate dojo. So the ring was on one end of this big room and the other part was, uh, karate floor, that wood, wood floor. And it was taped off as a karate dojo. So that we used the tape marks as lines where we were doing push-ups. We're going to walk with that line or this line in the back. And, and then we would do, you know, I would, I would be, they would count, you know, I would come up and the person give me the body slam, like every 10 or 15 body slams might be a different person. I was coming up into a different person. You know how you, you get up off, you're always spinning off your right knee. You're spinning off your right knee. You're, spinning, you're always coming, you're always turning to the right when you get up, uh, in wrestling. And, so yeah, as you're spinning up, you, you're, you're coming in, and there's another, you know, there's a different guy there. And you get to 50, you, you can't breathe. You, you know, by 75, you, you're not even sure where you are. I mean, think about just spinning around, just without the body stems. You're going to go down the ground, spin around on your knees, stand up. Go down the ground, spin on your knees, stand up. Do that 75 times in, in, in the heat or in even, even when it's not hot. And you get to 100. It's such a relief when you get to the 100. And if you're heavy going up, you know how you post. You know, you're yeah. doing a, a body slam. You're going to post. You're going you're to work. If you're heavy going up, they'll tack on another 20. And uh, trust me, that, that only happens once. It happened to me once, and never talked about it. You know, it only happens once because it's such a horrible feeling to get to 100 and have them say, you are heavy, you need to do another 20 because you have no idea where it's going to come from. I don't know how I'm going to get here. I can't breathe. I'm all, I'm all already going to pass out. I'm on the verge of tears. In fact, there were many days, you know, in fact, every day, somebody would cry or somebody would throw up. If nobody cried and nobody threw up, then he would just turn it up a max the next day. And, and uh, it was no shame. You, you would lose it. You would just start crying. We just get to that point where like, I can't do it anymore. And, you know, that happens once. And then and then you get you get to the hundred, and then boom, end of the line, and then the next person is up, and then the next person, and then it's back to you. Okay, fifty backdrop, boom. Okay, now we're going to do hundred flying mares, and we're going to do this, we're gonna, one after another after another, until until bump training was over. And then we did shoot training. Shoot after that was um, you know tap out, right? And I I didn't know anything about tap out. I knew pro wrestling and I knew amateur wrestling. I didn't know anything about tap out. I don't know anything about submission wrestling. I didn't know how to counter because all the stuff that they were doing is illegal. I don't know how to get out of a real chokehold. I don't know how to get out of a real, you know, nose grip or whatever they were doing. And if you lose, you stand the mat and a fresh guy is coming in. You don't get to take a rest until you win. And at some point, you know, you get pushed so far that you'll dig real deep, real, real deep. And you go, I'm going to die if, if these if these guys aren't going to stop. He's not going to stop sending some fresh guy on me, and, and I'm just going to I'm going to I'm going to eat it. 
and you dig deep to get off that mat. You'll do anything to take a break. Get me off of this mat. Let me rest. And you'll dig real deep, and I remember digging deep and cinching up on somebody. Go boom, and then they would drop out. And go boss, you go, Kurt, that's great. That's exactly what he wants. He got to do that every time. And he would be all happy about it. And I'd be over the end of the line, catching my breath, trying not to cry. <laughs> you know, that went on for, for months before, before I got good at shoot wrestling. I asked him one time, why are we doing this? The bump training, I know. I asked him, you know, why are we, why do we, why do we do this bump training so much? Why am I doing a harder body snaps? I don't know how to take a body snap. And his answer made sense to me. He goes, Kurt, if you're at the Budokan and you're blown up and you don't know where you are and you can't breathe, no matter what, you're going to be able to take a bump and not hurt yourself. If I pick you up and give you a body slam, you know that that's what's coming. If I send you off the rope and I go down and give you a backdrop, you know that that's coming. No matter how disoriented you may be, the response that you're going to give me when you're taking a bump is going to be automatic. You won't have to worry about getting hurt at the Budokan. And that's why we do this. I'm like, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So I asked him about the uh, the shoot training. Why am I why am I training? Why are we doing this? We can't do any of this. It's just you know I don't understand. He's like, because there's nothing more embarrassing than a pro wrestler getting his ass kicked in a bar fight. Okay. You'll never lose a bar fight, and that's why we do this. I'm like, okay, that that makes sense. You know, always gonna it might not be flashy, but you're gonna make the guy cry and say uncle. I'm like, okay, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> and then after sh- we would do that for about another hour, you know, we'd do that shoot training for about an hour every round. And, you know, after a while, you you know, you, you get good. Everybody wins some, everybody loses some. And, but you going in and out of that mat for about an hour, and then we go on a run. Uh, it's about a three and a half four mile run around the around the dojo. Uh, this is a, a route that we take a few blocks up, a few blocks over, that kind of thing, and then. You meet back in front of the dojo, and there's a really steep hill in front of the dojo. It goes about a block long. You carry somebody on your back, and you sprint to the top of that hill ten times. You, you sprint up, and then you walk back down. You both walk back down, and then you sprint back up, and you both walk back down. You do that ten times, and then you switch. He carries you up ten times. And my partner was Kobashi because he was the he was the only guy that was anywhere near my size. So... And Kobashi did it with him. I, mean, I swear, he did all the running. The only thing he didn't do is he didn't do the he didn't do the bumps, but he gave the bump. But all the push-ups, all the running, all the squats, he did it with us. And um, he he would go up, and then we'd get, get done with that ten times. We'd go into the dojo, and we'd do uh, 500 squats, 500 Hindi, what they call Hindi squats, squats, and then practice was over. Mm-hmm. At the end of the first day, my very first day, I didn't think it was ever gonna ever gonna end. And these guys are all going through it. I, I, and I did it till you know, I did as much as I could every single day. And then, <laughs> and then when I got done with the first day, I didn't, I didn't know what I was going to do. I, I didn't know what I was going to do because I, I didn't know how I was going to be able to come back the next day and do all of that again. And I didn't do 1,200 push-ups and 1,600 sets. I only did a few hundred of each. You know, <laughs> my arms were shot. My, my legs were shot. My everything was everything, everything killed. I, I, I made it home. Uh, and I, and I passed out. I think I went to bed around 5 o'clock in the evening and I didn't wake up in the morning. I had to get back on the train and head back out to the dojo. And I am not a religious person, right? But I saw, I prayed every single day, every day, honest to God. I would go around behind the dojo. There's a little, little garden in the back. And every day, every single morning, I would go back there. And I would pray to just make it through the day. Pray for riches. 
<laughs> I didn't pray for fame. I just prayed to just get me through the day. Give me, give me enough strength to make it through the day every single day. I'm not a religious guy. Anybody who knows me can attest to that, but I did pray every day. Just make it through the day. If you're out there, if you're real, then help me, help me get through this day. And, and, and eventually you get it. You, you, you get to where you're doing it. You, and I, there must have been, God, maybe 20, 30 guys, you know, at least 20 that joined after I did. Then they all washed out. I mean, I treated everybody like gold because I, I was the lowest on a totem pole. It didn't matter by age. It mattered when you went to the dojo. You know, that pecking order, right? Yeah. And so I wanted somebody else below me. I mean, I was at the lowest in the low. You know, I was I was the gopher guy. <laughs> and uh, so I treated everybody like, you know, like gold. But they couldn't make it. They couldn't make it. One yeah. guy was huge. He was bodybuilder guy. You know, one of the big, strong, you know, triceps, biceps. Everything's great. Chest, right? We get to the, the push-up parts, that very first push-up set of push-ups, so we're doing 20 sets of 20 off the box. Um, he did probably maybe six sets of 20, and then stopped. And he said, I, I, I can't do it anymore. And Kibashi said, well, yeah, you just did 20, you can do more. Yeah, I can't. Kibashi's like, no, you got to do more, you know. I mean, Kibashi's like, no, you, nobody can do everything, you know, but you, you got to do it at least until you can't do it anymore. So do it do it again. And the guy, now mind you, he moved from the country, countryside somewhere. He came from Kyushu or something to come up to Tokyo. Moved into the into the into the dormitory. Moved in the first day of practice, and and he got to the and he, he did six. He did the six sets and he stopped and he said, "I, I can't do anymore." Wow. And Kobashi was like, "Look, you, you gotta you gotta do more. This isn't you know." And, and everybody's just stopping looking at this guy. Like, I know he's got at least ten more, and then he did twenty, so you know you can do ten, right? No. Nope. And so Kobashi said, "Well, I." I you know, you, you can either do 20 more or whatever you can do more, or you, you can you can go home. That That's your choice. And the guy said, oh, okay, then. And he, and he said, oh, okay, I'm going to go home. We were all just looking at each other like, yeah, are you kidding me? This guy had to go back to the dormitory because the dojo at that time was separated from the dormitory. Later on, they, they, they made one big building, but they, he had to go to the, uh, the, where all the boys were living at the time was actually uh, – one of Baba's larger houses that had like, I don't know, five or six bedrooms and all the guys, you know, shared a room in this place and like, like, you know, like a dorm. And, uh, and he go back to the house and get all his things, pack up and Kobashi, you know, uh, it was a Sato, uh, go, go, go escort him, make sure he packs up everything, escort him to the train station. Send him on his way. Now, who, what were some of the, who were some of the friendships that you made during your time in the dojo? Omori was my uh, probably closest friend in the dojo. Uh, Omori was um, he was in my class. Omori, Asato, Masao Inoue, Izumida, Akiyama. Those guys were all in my class at the time. Richard Slinger was he was not he was he had graduated from the dojo by that time. Asako and Masao Inoue um, they were still coming to the dojo. But they were upper. They, they, those guys were above us, so they didn't have to do everything that we did. But Mossman come later. Mossman came right around the time I was leaving. Oh. So um, Ogawa uh, was, uh, you know, so Yoshinari Ogawa and uh, Kikuchi. Uh, Kikuchi was the guy who was uh, in the in the uh, early nineties. He had uh, white trunks with the Japanese flag across his butt, the Japanese naval flag across his butt. Um, and Ogawa was, um, 
uh, sort of a medium sized wrestler, longer hair. Um, Ogawa and Richard Springer were really good friends. And so I got, um, you know, when we were on the road, um, I, I got, I, I would go out and eat and drink with those guys a lot. But in my class, of my class, I would say, uh, that, uh, Omori was probably my closest friend there. And your first match for the company was in early of January of 93 against Mighty Inoue. Take us back to no, that day. No, that's not true. Oh, uh, that's a mistake. It, oh. it, it, it was against Masao Inoue. Masao Inoue. Okay, got it. So on the last match, the, 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 my dad's retirement match, there was a six-man tag team. Mm-hmm. And, and our side was uh, Giant Baba, my dad, and me. On the other side was um, uh, Egan, Fuchi, and Masao Inoue. On the other side, so the other side were three people who coincided with our side. So uh, Egan coincided with Giant Baba. Fuchi coincided with my dad. And I, because it was my first match, Masao Inoue. That's why Masao Inoue was in wow. that last match. But, well, um, it's not it, it's it's not a uh, you know it, it's an understandable uh, mistake because Mighty Inoue and I had many many matches. I I I think I wrestled Masao Inoue maybe you know half a dozen times, including the first match. But I wrestled Mighty Inoue dozens. I wrestled Mighty Inoue a lot. I love wrestling Mighty Inoue. Mighty Inoue is an unbelievably good wrestler. He is the very definition of a professional wrestler. He has great moves. He's exciting. He's got a great pace. He's light as a feather. He will never hurt you. He makes darn good, you know, you know, he makes darn sure that, you know, whatever we're doing, we're both safe. You know, and he would give, he give everybody a really, really good match. And he wasn't selfish. If I wanted to do something, he wasn't, he wasn't worried about me upstaging him. He was, nice. he was more concerned about a really good solid match. And we would go out and we would, you know, the matches in Japan are 30, 40 minutes long. 30 minutes long. A 30-minute match is a, sh- is a short match. You know, mm-hmm. all my matches were 20, 30 minutes long, and we were wrestling every night. We wrestled 28 days out of a month. <laughs> you, know, you, know, you don't choreograph a 30-minute uh, match or a 20-minute match. You know, we would just go. We would just get in the ring and just go. So it isn't, it isn't, uh, it isn't um, uh, I mean, it's understandable if somebody made a mistake and mistake. Uh, my first match for Mighty Inoue to Matsao Inoue that I, I was my first match. Yeah. Were you nervous that night? Your your first night? Of- oh, oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I was really nervous. Uh, I, you know, I have, um, I have a lot of, uh, there, there are some political stuff that happens in wrestling, uh, no matter where you are. It happens in every company. Politics and company, backstabbing in every company, and it doesn't matter what your industry in and whether you're uh, uh a stockbroker on Wall Street or a professional wrestler in Japan, you know, there's going to be, you know, insider, you know, maneuvering uh, and backstabbing and, and politics that goes along. Um, when, uh, when I debuted, Baba-san purposely debuted me away from Tokyo, probably the furthest point from Tokyo that I could be. What was uh, Shitoku? I, I, I think I debuted in, uh, not even Kyushu, it was Shikoku. Yamaguchi, it was, yeah. Yeah, it was the, of the four main islands in Japan's island chain, Hokkaido, Honshu, Kyushu, and Shikoku, it was the smallest island. 
know, it's in the middle of nowhere out in the country. And we still, I mean, the houses for all Japan in those days were still, I mean, a small house was 3,000 people. A small house in those days was 3,000 people. After my match, you know, uh, Inoue wins. Um, but all Japan, all, I mean, um, Tokyo Sports is all backstage, all ready to, you know, interview me and take the pictures and make the, you know, Kirk debuts, blah, blah, blah. And I, and I, and I watched Baba try to uh, shoot them away. No. They're not going to interview. No. Wow. And I, I didn't put two and two together at that time. I just thought he didn't want them uh, interviewing now because I had other duties to do. Because after, you know, when you're a young wrestler and you're in that total pull thing, when you, when you were done with your match, you go back, you know, you don't, we don't even shower. We dry off. We put the uniform on, the Ultra Pan Pro Wrestling uniform. In the summer, there's shorts and a, and a shirt. In the winter, there's the, the, the long sweatpants with the, whatever trainer you got on. But everybody's got that uniform. And every, you know, it changes from time to time. Sometimes it's red with white writing. Sometimes it's, you know, green with whatever. But uh, in those days, it was all red, you know, red uniform. And you you got to help escort guys to and from the ring. And, when, you know, when you escort into the ring, then you stay at the ring. That's why you watch the old the old matches. There's all these guys at ringside with, you know, on their knees, you know, on one knee with the elbow up on the ring watching the match. And, you know, our job at that point was to learn by watching. So in addition to doing all of our dojo stuff and all of our preliminary matches, now in addition to helping guys continue from the ring, we have to stay at ringside and watch the ring, watch the match, and learn. Watch it because we can hear everything that's going on when we're watching that closely. Wow. And that was our job. And so I thought that he was, you know, saying, no, you know, the interview will come later. But it never came. But when uh, Akiyama debuted, uh, it was a big – Akiyama debuted about uh, maybe a, a month before me. And uh, it was a huge – he debuted in Tokyo, and it was a huge press conference. Izumida was the next one to debut, um, and he debuted with a huge press conference. And then I debuted in the middle of nowhere – and Tokyo Sports wasn't even allowed to talk to me. And I found out or figured out much later that there was a segment within All Japan Pro Wrestling that was resentful of the fact that the Destroyer's son was coming up through the ranks. And they were doing everything they could to uh, diminish that fact, to discredit oh. that fact. Now, I, I admittedly was not a superstar wrestler at the time. I, my, my, I, I wasn't that good yet. I mean, I'd only been wrestling for you know, a couple of years, right, and trained for – about a year and a half before I had my first match, and now we're you know we're we're early on, but uh, I, I figured it out. Things come, you know. There are certain people that are trying to rewrite history in Japan. So you watch you watch a documentary on Ricky Dozan and not see any mention of the Destroyer because yeah, trying that's to, true. Yeah, you're trying to write my dad out of history. It got so bad that when Gong Magazine and Baseball Magazine saw uh, they, they had a merger event. They were merging, and um, they had a huge event in uh, Shibuya, uh, this big, huge event hall with a bunch of wrestlers, a bunch of the women wrestlers, a lot of press, a lot of media there, and they specifically asked Natoko to come, and they told uh, my dad's uh, manager at the time, it was a guy named uh, Tani Murdoch, and they said, uh, Tani-san, make sure that you bring the destroyer here and make sure that uh, Natoko's here. 
and then I I wish I had I wish I had this I wish I had a recording of this, but the uh, he was a retiring guy, uh, he was the editor in chief of Baseball Magazine Shaw, and pro, uh, pro Rest Magazine, and he basically um, uh, talked for 20 minutes about how my dad was uh, largely responsible for the success of wrestling in Japan and Baseball Magazine Shaw. If it wasn't for you know, all Japan, uh, the, uh, the, the, the match with Mickey Dozan and dad coming over to wrestle for all Japan later in the seventies. Then all of the rivalries that he had early on, early on in it with, with, uh, Abdullah the Butcher and no, no mascara. So those are, those, those are huge matches. Those were great matches. And, uh, the magazines wouldn't have sold. Wrestling wouldn't have sold. Great television ratings wouldn't have been enough. And the guy recognized even at that time, there is an effort to rewrite this history, but we have the history in our in our files, meaning the, the baseball magazine shop and and uh, and Gong magazine. We have the files that show the real history, and it was a rebuke of Matoko and other people that were there uh, that are part of this effort in the background to sort of diminish my dad's uh, part in uh, wrestling in Japan. It's a it's a real very real thing. So these some of these people were part of keeping me squashed. And Babasan, he listened to those guys. He was, I'll let Kurt, I'll let Kurt wrestle for us because I owe the, I owe the destroyer. But um, I, won't, I won't let him do anything because uh, I have to please these guys. But make no mistake, Babasan was a friend of my father's, but Babasan was not a friend of mine. He was not a friend of mine. And we, you know, he's the boss. I'm not, when I say friend, I don't mean, hey, buddy, let's go out and have a couple of drinks. He was, he was not nice to me at all. And what's really what's what's really telling is that if the if the situation were reversed, if my dad were the promoter and it was my dad's show, and and Baba's son was coming to learn and wrestle at my dad's, it was, it was exactly the opposite. I guarantee you that my dad would have bent over backwards to make sure that a Baba's son learned right, did the work, worked hard, but he was taken care of. He would have made sure of all of those things. Dad wouldn't have given him a free pass. He would have made him work hard. But if he was working hard, Fuchi was sent to the dojo a couple of times to see if I was doing the work. Fuchi came in, and and, uh, and Fuchi showed up at the dojo one time and to work out with us. And we did all the workout, did all the push-ups, blah, 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 blah. And he finished up at the end of the day, after all that stuff that I told you about before, all, all the push-ups, all the bumps, all the running, all the squats, Fuchi, Fuchi did it with us. He uh, he looks at Kobashi and he goes, he looks at me and goes, Kurt, you're doing everything. And I said, well, yeah, of course I'm doing everything. And uh, he looks at Kobashi and goes, come on, son, does Kurt work this hard every day? Kobashi goes, yeah, every day. He's always doing everything, every day, why? And Fuchi says, no, 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 heard a rumor, I had to come check it out. I'll go back and tell people to shut the fuck up. Oh, excuse my language, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, you can beat that out later. Hopefully. I'm sorry. I, it's, a, it's a TV 14 here. You know, I don't need to beep anything. Right. I'll just be yourself. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, and, and so he had come out basically to – so, yeah, there was some stuff going on that uh, I just you – know, I didn't have any control over. And so I, I personally um, am thankful for Baba for letting me – the biggest gift that he gave us, and it was more of a gift to my father, was the last matches. After all of that, uh, when he came down, my dad was going to retire, and our last three matches were tag team matches. The first one was in Ishikawa, 
and that was a surprise. We didn't know. We, we showed up at the arena. We looked at the card you know, on the inside of the locker room door. I'm like, holy cow, we're tag team. And, uh, and then uh, Baba said, well, yeah, yeah, you're going to be tag team tonight. And then uh, uh, the day after tomorrow, we're in Yokohama. You're tag team there. And the day after that is the Budokan. You're tag team there. I knew that we were going to be tag team at the Budokan. I heard about it earlier. Mm-hmm. But the uh, uh, the Yokohama match and the Ishikawa match were a surprise to us. Now, and, was uh, there was there ever a plan? And you touched us you touched on this a little bit. And I heard a couple whispers uh, talking to some of the Japanese press. Was there a plan at some point for you to become Destroyer Junior, or did you just want to continue to use the name Kurt Meyer, or did Baba himself not allow that? Yeah, Baba himself did not allow that. And some of this has, some, some of this is on, I, I suspect, and I'll go ahead and say it, I suspect that, uh, that, um, Momota, uh, Ricky Momota, uh, was, uh, a little bit responsible. I think he, he didn't want to see the disturbed son get any big push. He was Ricky Dozan's son and he didn't get a big push. So, you know, uh, that sort of thing. Maybe there's some of that in the background. You know, Momota was always, you know, kind to me and nice to me, you know, uh, to, to my face. Um, but I don't know if that was uh, some of the stuff going around in the background. I don't know. But, yeah, I wanted to wrestle as Destroyer Junior. I had a mask designed with a little Junior logo on the on the ear. It was my dad's mask. I basically took my dad's mask, and I put, like, this little triangular Junior, junior logo on each ear. And I was going to wrestle as Destroyer Junior. I was going to work it a little bit differently because there was no mystery to my face. Everybody knew who I was. But I was going to use the mask as a source of power. You know, I would use the mask in times of crisis or I'd come out with the mask and I'd wrestle with the mask. At the end of the match, I would, you know, give the mask away to some kid because you can get, I could get the mask made. And if you're on, you know, if you're on tour, uh, I need 30, after 30 matches on this tour, I need 30 masks. Okay, great. Boom. You know, I was going to, I was going to uh, use it in that sort of fashion. That's how I had imagined using mask. And they said, no, you, you're not Destroyer Junior. You're Kurt Byer. And they, they, everybody knows that uh, the destroyer's real name is Dick Byer. And in fact, in, in Japanese, this is a side note. Um, when we first moved to Japan, it has nothing to do with wrestling. <laughs> when we first moved to Japan, because our name is spelled B-E-Y-E-R, we were told by Japanese that were there that it's B-E-Y-E-R, so you have to pronounce your name in Japanese as Beya. Beya. B-E-Y-A-A. Beya. Uh, B, uh, B-E-I-Y-A-A. Beya. You have to, that's how you have to say it. And I was like, yeah, but it's Bayer. Bayer. And, uh, they said, no, no, you have to say it because it's B-E, you have to say Beya. And, and the, 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 the character, not the kanji, but the katakana for He, or Be, and Ba, or Ha, is just different. So you could say Baya. I could say Ba-E-Ya. Baya which is a much more closer pronunciation than Beya, right? And because uh, his name is Bayer. And they said no. So even though on my business cards when I was working in Japan, you know, for the ad agency and for the newspapers, my, my name is Kalto Bayer. My name is my Kurt Bayer. But when I wrestled uh, for All Japan, we used Beya because that was the connection to my dad. Everybody knows it's Beya, so it's Kalto Beya. So I was Destroyer's son, but I was Dick Byer's son. I'm not Destroyer Junior. So he wouldn't let me wear the mask. 
early on, before I even went into the dojo, I got a call from Tenryu, who was starting his own group at the time. And Tenryu uh, offered me uh, a position in his in his organization. Early on, I hadn't even gone to the dojo at All Japan. Just it was a it was a press release that the Destroyer's son was going to enter the world of pro wrestling, was going to go back to the States and train with the Destroyer, and then he was going to come back and wrestle for Japan. And it was before I even, you know, left Japan and went through, and I got a call uh, from Tenryu. He said, look, if you come over to Japan, you can wrestle for my group. And I said, well, it's a really great offer, but I, I think I have to go to all Japan because that's where my dad is. He goes, okay, I understand. And, uh, you know, if I had gone to Tenryu, I could probably have wrestled as a story junior, but I wouldn't have gotten that last match with my dad. That's true. I wouldn't have been able to wrestle. So that's what I'm thankful to Baba. He never let me wrestle as Destroyer Jr. He didn't treat me very well. Um, He didn't look out for my well-being. He didn't care about my career. He didn't, uh, in fact, he actively, you know, Motoko and, and Baba treated me very, very poorly. But they treated my dad very well. So even though Baba was my dad's friend, he was not my friend. And the gift of our last three matches was a gift to my dad. It had nothing to do with me. But it was a, you know, the result is it's a huge gift to me too. Because, yes. you know, when I, when I was standing on the ropes, especially at the Budokan, even more than even more than the first two matches, standing at the Budokan, where I grew up watching all my idols, because I went to junior and high school in Japan. So the Budokan is like Madison Square Gardens. Budokan in Japan is exactly like Madison Square Gardens. We didn't have the Tokyo Dome at the time, didn't exist. So there was a couple of stadiums. There's Korakuen Stadium, a couple of other stadiums. They built Tokyo Dome. That holds, what, 80,000 people, maybe more? Yeah. That didn't exist in those days. So the largest venue that they had in Tokyo for an indoor venue was was Tokyo Dome. And um, there's something magical about Tokyo, I mean, about the Budokan, rather. All we had was the Budokan. So Santana, Bad Company, Earth, Wind, and Fire, Kiss, Eric Clapton, you know, those are the guys I would go to Budokan and watch, you know, all these, you know, musical greats that I was really into that, you know, it's like Madison Square Gardens. And if you ask any one of those guys that I just mentioned, Eric Clapton, would you rather play Madison Square Gardens or Shea Stadium? Madison Square Gardens only holds 16,000 people. Shea Stadium holds 80. Everybody says I'd rather play Madison Madison Square Gardens. There's something magical about Madison Square Gardens. Mm -hmm. And it's exactly the same thing when it comes to the Budokan in Tokyo. There's something magical and historical about the Budokan. And me standing in the Budokan Outside the road, tagging dad, I, I, I flashed back to when I was four years old trying to climb in the ring to save him. <laughs> you know, I mean, I was a little kid in my head. And I'm, I'm, I'm just standing there uh, to me that I remember thinking that night that it was never going to get any better than that. It was my dad's retirement night. And I remember thinking that I should probably retire too because it's never going to get any better than this. This is it for me. It's never going to get any better than this. Everything after this is going to pale in comparison. Now, what was it like to work with people like legends, like Dory Funk Jr., Pete Roberts, the Fantastic, and other legends early on in your career? Uh, All three of those people that you just met, the Fantastics were unbelievably great to work with. I loved working with them. They were consummate consummate professionals. They they were good. They were exciting to work with. The matches were never boring. It was exciting even for me to work with them. You know, because everything was fast, everything was good, everything was crisp and clean. Um, Pete Roberts, another one. Pete Roberts was really fun to work with. 
It was very good, good style of matches, and, and obviously Dory Funk Jr. is my favorite. He was my favorite gaijin wrestler to work with, and he was one of my favorite gaijin wrestlers of all time. He was Dory Funk Jr. went out of his way to teach the young kids in Japan, us of the dojo, not the children of Japan. I mean, in the in the dojo, in all Japan pro wrestling. When we were when we were on the road. You know, that, that workout regimen that I told you about before, that's why we're in Tokyo and at the dojo. When we're on the road, we still do a scaled-down version of that every day before the doors open at the arena. We're on the bus at 7 o'clock in the morning. We go four or five hours to the next town, check into the hotel, grab a bite to eat, and then head to the arena by, you know, uh, 3 o'clock in the afternoon because the doors open at 6 and we got it. We got to work out. We got to get in the ring, do the push-ups, do the sit-ups, do the bump training, do whatever training you're doing. And then, you know, six o'clock, the doors open. Then we get out. We you know we go change into whatever we're going to be wearing that night. Find out at that point who we're going to wrestle. Figure out what's going on after that. But Dory, when he was on the tour, he would get in the ring and work out with us. You know, all the time. You know, not every night, but you know, a few nights a week when we were on the road. He it was not uncommon for him at all. It wasn't uncommon for the Malenkos to get in and work out with us. They would come in and work out with us. Or they would see something that we did at a match, you know, the night before, and they would make a point of coming the next day and work out something that, hey, you might want to look at it this way, you might want to try it this way. They were really great. And wrestling with Dory was, you know, he was he was the ultimate. His, his matches, those were, that's probably my, I have, I had, I had one single match with Dory at the Budokan. That is an all-time favorite of one of my all-time favorite matches. At one point, um, you know how Tori does that spinning toe hold as a finish. Yes. And my dad finishes the figure four leg lock. So the figure four is also my finish. I adopted that too. That was going to be my figure four. I would do a figure four leg lock as a finish. And to go the way my dad puts the figure four leg lock on, it's sort of like the beginning of the spinning toe hold. You grab the leg, you spin around, and you just continue it with the. Uh, with the figure four, as you spin around and you're grabbing the other leg, you're putting the other one in place, and then you're stepping over and you're putting the figure four leg lock on, and you're, you're lying on your back. Whereas Dory's spinning toe hold, you're spinning around, but he's standing there and he's and, he, and he's got it in a, in a different position. So halfway through our match, you know, I, I'd give him a couple of big bumps, boom, 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 and I go to slap the the figure four on him, thinking that well, as I'm going to figure out, I'm expecting the other foot to come up and kick me off. He Instead of doing that, he spins right out of the ring, and he gives me this look. I mean, shoot, look like, what is your problem? And then he wags his finger at me like, uh-uh. And, of course, he gets a huge pop out of everybody, right? He fires back in the ring. He ties up with me and goes, hey, that's my finish. What are you doing, kid? Right? Whispers to me. And I'm like, oh, you know, Dory. We're whisper talking. Right? Said, Dory, I'm sorry. I meant to put the figure four on you, you know? That was the figure four. And he goes, oh, oh, kid, I forgot. I forgot. <laughs> Go ahead. Put it on me again. I'm like, no, I'm not doing it again. <laughs> I do it again. We, just, we just moved on from there. And then and then we went back into wrestling. You know, we went back into wrestling, wrestling. And then boom, 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 boom. But, you know, he took the time to actually stop, tie up with me, tell me what's up. In the middle of Budokan, you know, this is how cool this guy is. In the middle of the Budokan, 16,000 people. Ties up with me and says, it has a small conversation. What are you doing? I'm like, oh, I thought it was figure four leg lock. I wasn't going to put the spinning toe on. I was going to put the figure four. He's oh, yeah, that's right. You're dead. Let's do it again. I'm like, no. I'm not going to do that. 
What's the amazing back to Dory, wrestling? Dory still wrestles. He was just working, I believe, Korakon uh, uh, two nights ago. He he is a class act. L- let me tell you, Dory and his wife Marty. I I can't say enough nice things about the both of them. The both of them are aces in my book. They're absolutely fantastic. Marty was the only other wife, in fact, the only wife that I ever saw on tour. She would ride the bus with us. When she, when Dory was in Japan, Marty traveled with them. Marty rode the bus, bus with us. And I had, I was on the Japanese bus. And Dory was on the Japanese bus too. They had two, there's, there's three different buses. There's the big bus was the Japanese bus. That was Baba's bus. And then they had a, 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 a slightly smaller bus. That was the Gaijin bus. And then they had a really small bus, like a, like really just a really big van. And that was Misawa's. So Misawa, in the van was Misawa, Kobashi, Kawada, who, uh, Kawada. Uh, Misawa, Kobashi, Kawada, a couple of the other, uh, like, uh, Ogawa, those guys were part of Misawa's bus, and they had their own, uh, like, big van. That, that's what they were. And then, uh, the Gaijins were on the Gaijin bus, and, but Dory, when he came over, he was on the Japan team. So Dory came over, he rode the Japanese bus with Baba. Wow. And, uh, and, and sometimes Baba would be on his own. He would, he would have his own vehicle. He would, you know, and so Baba wasn't on the bus with us all the time, but we had, he had his own special seat on the bus, and if Baba wasn't there, anybody could sit in it. Um, but, um, uh, Dory, one day, he's sitting in the front right behind the bus driver, and I'm sitting right behind Dory, and I'm still at the bottom of the totem pole at that time. And Dory says, hey, Kurt, he had uh, Travis Tritt CD, uh, a tape, a cassette tape. And he says, here, give this to the bus driver. Have him put some music on. I'm like, uh, okay. Right? So I go up to the bus driver, and I said, uh, I'd like to put this tape on. The bus driver goes, well, I'm not playing music because I'm blowing the to- low man on the totem pole. He can bark harder than me, right? And uh, and." And I said, uh, well, Dory, Dory wants to listen to music. And he turns around, and Dory's right behind him. He goes, oh, oh, oh okay, Kurt Tom, Kurt Tom, go ahead, go ahead, put the music on, put the music on. We'll put the music on. And, and, he, and he turns it up, and it's all this country music blasting on the bus now. Behind us, there's, you know, there's Chumbo Tsuruta, there's Momota, there's Tawei, there's the whole crew, right? You know, they're all there. And, and at one point, Dory looks back, and he goes, hey, Kurt. Look at all those sourpusses pretending not to like this music. And I'll never forget that line. <laughs> Look at these guys pretending not to like this music. <laughs> and you know, was, Jungle was, had to have listened to that as much as, like, he, he started in Texas. So, I mean, that's what he had to have listened to in the early 70s. Yeah, I mean, he was, you know, he was 70s when my dad was there. Dory Funk and Terry Funk were coming over. They were main eventing in the 70s. You know, 20 years later, you know, he's he's still wrestling. My dad was still wrestling 20 years later, too. So, you know, and he would come over, and uh, I, like I said, you know, and even, you know what, Dory Funk, when 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 we pulled into town after the matches, there were several nights in my head where they made sure that, hey, Kurt, why don't you come with us? Let's, let's go out. You, you come have dinner with us, you know, and they, and they would take me out, and, you know, and I would go and eat and drink with Marty and, and Dory. You know, and they'll go out of the way to introduce me to, to girls. Hey, Kurt, hey, here, you, you should meet this girl. And Marty said, oh, yeah, this is Kurt. And Marty, his wife had set me up. You <laughs> <laughs> talk to Kurt. And they were, they were just so nice. They, they were unbelievably nice. And, and all Dory, and the, you know what? One of the biggest lessons I ever learned 
with some Dory from about wrestling. He's like, every single bump, every arm drag that you do, every backdrop, every body slam you take should be nice, crisp, and clean. Bam! Make sure that everyone is nice. Don't, you know, because the people are getting getting into the habit of, oh, I'm, you know, I'm tired, and you know, take a, a half-assed bump. And he's like, dude, there's no point in taking a bump if you're not going to make it spectacular, make every single bump count. Every single bump you take should count. That was, that was a Dory Funk Jr. thing. Every single bump you take should count, should mean something. I never forgot that. Now, did you have the mentality that your career would be primarily in Japan, or did you have intentions of wrestling at the States at some point? I did. After after my dad's last match, so dad can get away and do – but dad was able to do a lot of things at All Japan Pro Wrestling that none of the other guys and boys were able to do because of his status and history in Japan. He – he had a free pass to a lot of different stuff. And so he was able to call his own press press conferences, you know. And uh, after the last match that night, there's, you know, of course, the press conference. And Dad brought me in. And Dad took off his mask in front of the press that night. And he gave me the mask. And he told me to put the mask on. And the only picture that went to print was a picture of me with the mask on. None of the press printed my dad's picture. None of them did. Out of respect. It's unbelievable. Wow. Out of respect. It's unbelievable. They, none of those guys printed it. And there's a picture of me uh, with the Destroyer Junior mask on. And, uh, you know, now Kurt's going to be the Destroyer Junior. Well, after that last match, Baba said, Kurt, you need to go away for a year and then come back to Japan. Because, you know, now this is a really big, high-level, you know, high-profile match. I, I can't suddenly give you a big push from here to here, so you got to go away from here, and when you come back, then we can give you, you know, you can come back and enter at an elevated state. So I said, okay. So I came back to the States, and I trained harder here, because the dojo in Japan, you know, as rough and tough as it is and, and brutal as it is, isn't really designed to build you up. Any fitness expert will go in and say, well, this is counterproductive. You know, if you're doing a thousand, a thousand two hundred push-ups, it doesn't mean anything. A thousand six hundred sit-ups, you don't need to be doing a thousand. You need to be doing a hundred really good ones, blah, 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 right? Yeah. But that's not the point. The point is just, it's, it's endurance and doing it and the pain of it and living through the pain. That's all of this about. It's not about actually building your body up. You know, it's not actually training you. The, the dojo has nothing to do with training you. The dojo is more about weeding you out. So, you know, the guys, those wrestlers don't get bigger. They don't build up. They don't bulk up until they're done with that dojo process and they can start lifting on their own. And so I took that year away from Japan to, to build up as much as I can. I could have at the time. And I went to, I got uh, invited over to Germany by uh, Otto Vance to uh, have a title match uh, against uh, Franz Schumann, um, Austrian Franz Schumann. And that was uh, the learning experience. And that was uh, probably at one of the best experiences of my life. At the same time, one of the worst matches I ever had in my life. That was and by that, rounds, too. That wasn't even a straight match. That was like their round system, correct? Yeah, yeah. It was uh, uh, 15 rounds, 15 four-minute rounds. <laughs> four-minute rounds, go back to the corner. Four-minute rounds, go back to the corner. The ring was brutal because... The um, in a normal wrestling ring in all Japan wrestling uh, wrestling ring the um, the ring is a twenty foot ring twenty feet across and the beams go from one end to the other 
So there's 20-foot-long beams that hook on. So that when you build the ring, you've got the square box, these big, huge beams that make up, they, they connect the four corner posts. The four corner posts, and then uh, going one way, north and south, are 20-foot beams that go across north and south. And then east and west are 20-foot um, slots that go across those joists that are, that are the beams that go across north and south are spaced probably maybe two feet from each other or a foot and a half from each other all the way across. And then the slats are butt up right against each other that go east and west across the other way. And then the um, going the other way across the eastern slats are the mats for, the, for the, the athletic mats that go down. And then the apron goes over all of that. But because those beams are 20 foot across, when you're, you know, when you're taking a bump in the middle of the ring, that's where you want to take the bumps because the middle of the ring is a little bit of dip because there's a little bit of flex and natural flex in the ring. And, you know, you, you can't imagine standing on a 20 foot, you know, four by six beam and expecting it to bend. They don't bend. But if you're taking a bump and two, 250-pound guys are coming down in a power slam. There is a little bit of give to that in the middle of the ring. My dad's ring is a 20-foot ring, and his 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 posts are 10-foot, but he's got uh, it's split into quadrants. So there's a center post in my dad's ring. Most rings have a center post. The Japan ring didn't have a center post because the but the beams were 20-foot across, and they had a high budget. So you snap we snap those four by six beams all the time. But they have a truck full of replacement beams that just slide right into place. And my dad, you know, he's, you know, his 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 ring is uh, ten foot with the center post, and the center post has a really really big industrial spring in it, really big, uh, heavy heavy duty spring. You can't get it to go up and down just by standing on it. But if you're coming down hard, it gives a little bit of give. That give isn't there to make it nice and soft for you to land on because you're still bam, on that mat, it's there to give some flexibility to the ring so that those boards don't snap all the time. Because two 500, you know, two, 250, 260-pound guys coming down is 500-plus pounds in a certain spot, and kabam, you know, boards break. And uh, the the ring in Germany had a center post, like my dad's, but the center post was stationary. They did have industrial springs, but the industrial springs were at the four corner posts. It was a, a different that the flex was at the corner instead of in the middle, and Ooh. so it uh, it was a very difficult ring to to wrestle on because nobody wanted the Franz Schumann didn't want to take a bump in the middle of the ring. <laughs> you know, and it, it's a one match deal. We, I went over the week before; it was a week worth of hype because they wrestle every night. They in Germany they wrestle every night. They come to town for like you know a month, and they wrestle every night for a month in this town, and then they move to another town and they wrestle every night for a month in that town. They come to town the way a Broadway show comes to town. And and they they sell out sell out crowds every night. The wrestlers they, they live in caravans, you know, or those trailers. The way movie actors live in a trailer when they're when they're on location. Same thing. The, the wrestlers have those type of things that they live in. If it's cheaper than living in a hotel. I was I was there for a week before this this big title match, hiking every day, you know, with press conference on this day, another press conference and that's the events different things in the match and they wrestle every day but they'd have a, a little spot in the middle of the show to hype this upcoming championship match with you know Kurt Byer versus uh, Franz Schumann come the night of the match you know Franz Schumann didn't want to do anything 
he won't take a bump. He didn't want to do this. And, you know, I, it was just a dismal, dismal match. It was horrible. Otto I, 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 Vonk asked me the next morning, you know, how did you think the match went? And I told him, uh, I, I just apologized to him. I said, I'm, I'm really sorry. I said, the finish was really good, but the rest of the match was horrible, and I'm sorry. And I never got invited back, you know. And, and, and I thought that, you know, maybe, you know, they might, you know, see a little bit that, okay, um, it takes two to tango. I never, I, you know, I, I never wrestled that style. I never worked in that thing. There's all kinds of excuses I could give. At the end of the day, I had, I had a week to watch. It was another learning experience. I had a week to watch Franz Schumann of how he worked, and I, had, and I should have. Um, instead of being timid, I was a little bit too timid to just take over. And I think that's what I should have done in hindsight. Hindsight's 20-20. Hindsight, I should have just made him take a bump in the middle of the ring. What the hell do I care? We're here to work, damn it. This is a wrestling match, for crying out loud. You know, it's not the ballet. You know, this isn't the ballet, kid. You know, that was a, that was a, that was a Steve Williams, that was a Steve Williams line. One of the guys came in all bloody. You know, oh, that was me. I came in. I had a, I had, I got hit in the nose. My nose ruptured. And at the same time, I cut my lips. So I was bleeding. All over the place. I came into the, into the locker room full of blood, and, and Williams looks at me and he goes, Everything's a ballet kid. <laughs> yeah, and, it, and I should have taken over in Germany. I should have just said, Okay, you know what? We're going to have my match. You know, and I, and I let him lead the match, and I let him set the tone and the, and the pace, and, and it was, a, it was a, a boring, dismal, pathetic match, and I'm glad that there isn't a video of it. So I'd have to live that down for the rest of my life. Now let's go from that match to the favorite, you know, your your favorite memory of your career. The first of all, the final three matches of your dad's career were teaming with you. And you touched on this earlier, but what was it like to see the match lined up those first couple times and see that you were teaming with your dad? Well, that that was really great. Uh, Ishikawa was the the first one, and that was uh, a huge surprise. And it was me and my dad against um, Mighty Inoue and Omori, you know, two of my favorite wrestlers. So, you know, and that was, uh, that was candy. I mean, that was like a total gift. The, the match couldn't have gone better. Really great match. Um, you know, to be able to see it, you know, walk out with dad. Uh, you know, my sister was there for the last three matches. So she got to see it. Unfortunately, my brother was in the army. Um, he was, uh, he was a, he was at the time he was a lieutenant. He, he got out of the army as captain, but he was a lieutenant in, um, in Korea and with the Bradley unit. In Korea, and uh, his CEO wouldn't let him fly over to watch his dad's retirement match because he thought, "Yeah, I'm not gonna let you go watch, you know, pro wrestling match. That's that's not what we're doing here, you know." Until the guy found out that, "Oh, this is a really big deal." I didn't know. I didn't understand. I didn't. You should have tried to explain to me that this was a really big deal. Of course, I'm gonna let you go. Well, it's too late by then. So my brother couldn't make it. So yeah, my sister was there, um, being able to walk out with dad in that match. So that match. You know, wrestling Omori and um, and uh, Inoue, like I said, they're they're great professionals. They know how to work. Uh, they're good, solid wrestlers. My dad, they, you know, my dad's face, Inoue and my dad are like they've been wrestling each other for years and years, or decades. So you know, that was like watching you know poetry in motion, watching those two go at it. Mm-hmm. Now, um, Richard Slinger himself told me to ask you this: oh. final night on the tour. Your final final match of your dad's career. You mentioned me at Cauliflower Alley. That was a highlight of your career. Richard Swinger wanted me to ask you: 
tell them to tell us about the press that night and how they were how much press there was. Oh well, so uh, the or before I, I I get there, there's the match in the middle uh, was uh, at uh, Yokohama, and that was my dad and me against Giant Baba and Ricky Dozen's son uh, Ricky Momota, and that was in Yokohama. And the final match, Baba was wrestling with us, and we're um, wrestling, like I said, my, uh, uh, Masao, Masao Inoue, uh, Fuchi, and Egan. And the uh, the press, I don't think I've ever seen that much press at the Budokan. But there was a, a huge, after the match, I mean, there's stuff in the match. I mean, you know, when you watch that match, if, uh, and I have the whole match in its entirety, I don't think that the whole match when uh, All Japan Pro Wrestling videos were released and they had that match on it, that match was edited. They edited a lot of the match out because they have, you know, there's a lot of other matches on the tape that's coming out, but that match was edited. But if you watch the whole match, you know, there's all this stuff that as you're watching, oh, that was a great spot that you guys worked out, or that was a great spot that you guys worked out, and we didn't work out anything. Everything just happened. It just mm-hmm. happened that way. And it just, it just worked out perfectly. And I remember Fuchi grabbing me after, right we're still in the ring you know we just got our hands and you know after the match they're shaking you know we shake each other's hands and and Fuji said Kurt everything was great everything was good everything was good you know and they, 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 they don't they don't they don't say that to you in Japan Japanese don't praise each other nobody says hey great match no, not even to each other you come out to the dressing room, you know, there isn't anybody that says, hey, that was a good match, a good match, blah, 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 you know. Nobody says that, but he, he was, uh, he, he, you know, Fuchi, just everything everything in this match, everything worked out great. It was a good match, you know. At the end of the match, there was uh, all the guys, uh, all the wrestlers came out. They lined outside the ring, all the wrestlers, the Gaijin boys, the Japanese boys, everybody came out, and they circled the ring, and one uh, like television station, Channel 4, uh, the president of uh, uh, Baseball Magazine, Shaw, the president of Tokyo Sports, the president of uh, Gong Magazine, the president of every – there was a gift. They, they would come up and they, they'd give my dad – you know, this guy gave my dad his trophy. This guy gave my dad a gift. Every one of these organizations had a different gift from my dad that they came up with on their own. And some of those gifts are in my dad's museum here. Um, you know, some, you know, framed pictures and framed, uh, news articles that they, that they put together. It was, and it, that ceremony went on for, I don't know how long, was, you know, 20, 30 minutes of one guy coming in after another. And then after that, the, um, everybody got out of the ring and they left my dad standing in the middle of the ring by himself. They turned the lights down on the whole place and they had spotlights from the four corners coming on them. And, uh, there's a song by Wada Akiko that talks about, you know, uh, how much you meant to me and how much you left and stuff like that. And it was uh, um, a really, really – I've never seen any retirement uh, ceremony like that for anybody, for anybody. Nobody's ever seen it. I mean, we, we, we'll do a retirement match, blah, 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 but not like that. I mean, that was a huge, huge deal. And, uh, and, and for that, you know, that's Baba being my dad's friend. That, that's where I'll never criticize Baba for – for, for being my dad's friend. He did everything right for my dad. Baba took care of my dad. But, you know, I, 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 have, a different, I have a different version of him. But Baba <laughs> took very good care of my dad. And that was part of that. We're, we're going to make a proper send-off. But uh, I also think that some of that 
has uh, was because of pressure from the, the press, from baseball magazine, from Tokyo Sports, especially from NTV. Those presidents weren't going to let the destroyer retire without some kind of big ceremony either. So, and then after that, then yeah, there was a lot of press. There was a lot of press in that room. Now, in the '90s, worldwide, the consensus is that all Japan was having the best wrestling in the world from bottom to top. What was it like to be a part of that whole atmosphere, seeing the boys having these incredible wrestling matches each and every night? Yeah, that, you know, a little bit strange for me to say it, but I think that was the greatest era of wrestling in Japan. I mean, some of the greatest wrestling that went on, I think the 70s, 80s, 90s, all Japan for wrestling was an excellent place to work. They had outstanding matches. I mean, that time was the last great time in Japan. I'm not, I'm not, I don't know if I could say the greatest because the stuff that was going on in the 70s was outstanding too. I mean, you know, Abdullah, you know, Mil Mascaris, Derry Funk, my dad, all these guys, you know, that to me is the highlight of all Japan pro wrestling is 70, 1970s is the pinnacle of all Japan pro wrestling. But when the stuff that they were doing in the 90s, especially the early 90s before Baba-san passed away, was uh, their last great stuff. That was really unbelievable. We were getting, Stan Hansen was there, Steve Williams, Terry Gordy, another great guy. Oh, my God, I miss Terry. Terry Gordy was a class act. He was such a good guy. He was a good wrestler, really good wrestler. And here's a guy who's not a steroid monkey, you know, and he's, he, he's just farm boy strong, right, and, um, and can wrestle for an hour. I mean, he can wrestle an exciting match for a full hour, and, and he probably couldn't run five miles. You know what I mean? You know, he is a professional wrestler, you know. And, and the guy is, uh, and he was a, he was a joy to work with, really good, uh, to work with. Those guys at All Japan Pro Wrestling at that time, everybody was making money. Everybody, every, I mean, except if you were in the dojo, <laughs> like me, here at bottom of the, I didn't start making money until at, at the end. When I went away for a year, and I came back after that year, I after wrestling in Germany and, you know, States, when I went back to Japan, then I was higher up on the card. I wasn't the opening match all the time. I was a little bit higher up on the card. Um, he didn't give me the big push that he promised me, and it probably didn't matter because I ended up getting really hurt really bad at that point. At the end of that series, I tore my shoulder out really, really bad, and that's where sort of things sort of ended for me in Japan. Um, but being part of that, when I look at it, after Babasan passed away, by the time my, my shoulder was ready to get back into it, Babasan had passed away. And when he passed away, there wasn't any place to go to because Mutoko took over and everybody, it was almost immediate. Noah, you know, everybody jumped ship and all the, all the animals got on a different ship and they called it Noah. And, uh, they left behind, you know, a few. Fuchi stayed behind. Hanson stayed behind. Um, but Williams uh, and Kawada and Mossman stayed behind. Yeah, and the, everybody else went with Noah. And Matoko was a, a, a horrible person. Horrible. I'll, I'll say it. I'll say it, you know she was a horrible. She was horrible to the boys. You know she. You know when we were on tour. You know she. You know we we have to show up at the at the arena. You know early for for training, right? We you know showed up at three o'clock and. If she was bored, then we would play fetch for Matoko. She would sit in a chair, and she would throw a ball, and we'd all have to run after the ball and pick up the ball and then run back and give it to Matoko. And she would do that until we were bored. 
until she was too bored with that, right? not until we were bored. She would throw the ball, and we'd run after the ball, and then she would throw the ball again, and we'd run after the ball until she was bored. And then we'd go back into, into – and she was horrible. That when I when I when I uh, went away for a year and I came back, I came back and I and I went to the office downtown. So as soon as I arrived in Tokyo, I'd been gone a year. I go back to the office right downtown, and uh, I walk in, and of course the office staff is all there. And I'm 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 checking in, right? I'm going there to find out what the schedule is. You know, where am I going to meet the bus? You know, blah 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 blah, uh, and uh, to get all the information. I was I'm this uh, a few days early. You know, it wasn't like the the, the two weeks going to start the next day, but I went back, you know, about you know, four, four or five days early just to be able to get all that. You know, what day am I going to meet the bus? Where am I going to meet the bus? Where am I going to blah, blah, blah. And Baba San and Matoka weren't there at the office, but, you know, when I walked in, he was like, hey, Kurt, how you been? Well, all the office workers are great. And, um, yeah, oh, yeah, you know, it's been a long year. Blah, blah, blah. It's great to have you back. Like, here's, a, here's a package. Here's your schedule. Here's the bus schedule. Here's the towns we're going to go to. All the hotels, because I got to give that to people in Tokyo that know me. You know, here's my schedule. This is the hotels I'm going to be at. This is where I'm going to be. So other people need to know where I'm going to be. So you know that that was a normal thing to do for anybody to they get all the schedule from from the office. When I come out of the office, that's on the like the fourth floor. When I when I go to get on the elevator um, to go back down and leave, Babasan and Matoko are coming out, and I'm like, oh hi, you know. And uh, and they Babasan didn't look at me, didn't didn't say, oh Kurt, great to see you. Good, how was your year? Nothing, just went, oh. and he just put his hand in with nose in the air and just walked by me and Matoko yelled at me, you know, who do you think you are just saying hi? You know, you have to say, it's to the boss. You have to greet him properly. You don't just say hi. You don't, you don't just say hi. You say, I'm like, oh, this is after a year. I've been gone for a year. Not like, oh, hey, great. Nice to have you back. Blah, blah, blah. Nothing. And, and, and I'm being yelled at in front of all the office workers. And uh, so I said, okay, uh, what do, what do you want me to say? I, I wasn't taking shit at that point. I, I was just done with it. I mean, I was not done with the whole thing. I was just done with her lecture at the time. It's like, you know what? What do you want me to say when I greet him? And I will say it every time I greet him. You tell me exactly how you want me to greet him. And she says, okay, you say, when you see the boss. I'm like, okay. And I made a point of every time I saw him, from that point to the point where we were all done, I'll make sure that every time I saw him, if I pass him, I say, try some of this. And that's it. That's all I ever said to him. From that point on, it's all I ever said to him. Until the last match, at the at the last night, you know, I said, thank you very much for the match, blah, blah, blah. Then the year later, when I went, after the uh, one of the last matches there, I got paid properly. You know, I got real gaijin money <laughs> And uh, at the end of the tour. I didn't know I was getting it, you know. And then all of a sudden, you get this big, huge amount of money on like you know, that that you're this is your thing from now on. I'm like, oh you know, was that at that point it was thirty five hundred a week. Well that's that's a pretty nice paycheck. Right? Even, yeah. even for today it's a nice paycheck. It was especially nice back then. And it's and I was a four week tour, so I take thirty five and multiply it by four. Fourteen thousand. You know, yeah. So there you go. So and I'm like, oh wow. You know, so um, I ran across the other side of the uh the Buddha conscious say thank you to Baba for, you know, the huge race and everything else. And I said, okay, you know, in my coming back on the next tour, you know, I, I had my shoulder to deal with and all of that. But part of the reason I didn't come back is because 
there was uh, an American wrestler at the time who was in charge of the booking, and I got uh, put on that. I'll say it, Johnny Ace. Johnny Ace was part of the booking for the States. Now, looking looking back, was there anyone in the company that you wanted to be in the ring with that you never had a chance to wrestle against? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, I would have liked to have wrestled Kobashi. That, I think that would have been a really great match. That's a, that's a really big uh, regret that I wasn't in it long enough to be able to wrestle Kobashi. That I did work with a lot of the other guys. Like I worked with Ogawa, I worked with uh, Kikuchi, I worked with Fuchi, I worked with Inoue, uh, Izumida, you know, all those guys. But I didn't work with, I didn't work with Misawa, um, or Kawada, or uh, Kobashi. And of those three, I really, really would have liked to have worked with Kobashi. That would have been a spectacular match. That would have been, that would have been, that would have been awesome. And that would have also raised your, your rank in, in the public and the company's eye, too, because they would have, you know, you're in there with him. You can't do no wrong, you know. Yeah, it would have, it would have, it would have raised up. I, I, I just got caught in the crossfire. At the end of the day, my time in Japan, I, I, I was, I got out of wrestling what I wanted. What I wanted was that four-year-old boy. I'm going to go in and save dad. You know, I got to wrestle with my dad on his last match. So to do that, I had to go through, oh, I had to go through hell. I had to go through, literally I had to go through hell. Blood, sweat, and tears. I had to work my ass off. I had to train for years. I had to put up with all the stuff in the dojo, um, and literally blood, sweat, and tears. And then, you know, then there's those last three matches. And like I said, it was never going to get any better. I wish I had a better career in Japan. Um, but at the time, that the, the political makeup wasn't going to let it happen. The guys that are booking in the States going to have, there's all kinds of things. And at the same time, there was nowhere to go in the States. I did go to Rochester. I had a match to try out for the WWF in Rochester. Another horrible, dismal match. Uh, I, I think the, in fact, that might be my worst match. <laughs> the match worse than the Franz Schumann match was my tryout for the WWF in Rochester. Was- Another horrible, dismal match. Just curious, who was who that against, and what? what I don't know. Was that? I, I, I I don't even remember. I, I don't even remember. It was it was against one of the jobbers because they put me over. You know, they, they, you know, you're, you're going to wrestle. You're going to go over. It was one of the jobbers, and you're going to do both. Whatever you want to do, do it then. And and it was it was an okay match. I say it was a dismal match, but that was one of the matches where um, uh, they sent word back to me and they said, okay, go in the juice, so you can't use you. It was it was more like I'm, I wasn't juiced up enough. Yeah, I was six four, a little bit taller, but I didn't have that that physique. So go, you know, go go on the juice and then come back. But we can't use you like this. Okay. Now, even after your dad retired and you continued to work with the company, was he aware of how your matches went and offer any advice? Yeah. So after he retired and then I went back and I wrestled. He you know, he did he did convince Baba. He was one of the ones that convinced Baba to put me on the Gaijin bus or the Gaijin side, um, which meant I would have ridden the Gaijin bus. I didn't. I never did ride the Gaijin bus, but instead of being on the Japanese side, now he's on the Gaijin side. I'm, I'm getting Gaijin pay. I should be on the Gaijin side, and 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 I think that's what Baba said fine, and I think that's where we, I got left to the wolves of you know. And then there's a little bit of stubbornness on my side, you know. I, I didn't call Baba either, right? You know, it's not like, well, Bob was, 
Bubba doesn't owe me anything. Is is you know any anything that might any friction that might be there between Bubba and me um, on a personal level. Certainly, he's not going to call me, right? I mean, that's never going to happen. I, I didn't call him. I didn't call him to beg for a job. I just didn't feel like I, I wanted to beg for a job. I gave these guys aren't calling me. I'm not getting booked. Can you can you call them to book me? I, I never did that. Mm-hmm. And I guess at the end of the day, I was okay with that. To be honest, right? Uh, I I knew that. I was a good wrestler, but I don't know. I, I don't know if I had it in me to be a great wrestler. And there's a there's a big difference. I could do all the moves, you know. I I didn't know if I had that it thing, that thing that people go, wow, I want to go watch that guy wrestle again. I want to watch the Destroyer again. I want to watch that dude with a butcher. I want that thing that 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 makes a really great wrestler. I don't know if I had it. I don't know if I had it in me. And, you know, part of my regret looking back on it is I, I was too willing to just let it end without really digging down to see if I ever had it in me. But what I got out of it was worth everything I put into it. More. It was worth more than that. Oh, my God. Being able to wrestle with my dad in the last matches, being able to stand there at the Budokan with my dad that time. I, I would go back and go through all the pain. Even if that was going to be my last match, I would do it all again. Now, sadly, your career ended prematurely. Can you explain what happened in, well, I believe it's fall of 94 with your body? Well, I uh, I had, uh, I tore my shoulder out. Um, my shoulder was really bad. Uh, I, I did a really goofy move with uh, with Omorty <laughs> coming off the top rope. Somehow he landed on my shoulder, tore it right out. And, um, you know, you don't have time off. You know, you're wrestling every night. And it got to a point where we're out after one of the matches, we're out, out on the town drinking with the boys, right? And and one of the guys, you know, said, Hey, you know, where's our where's where's where's, where's the hotel? And I went to point down the street and say, Oh, it's right down there and I couldn't lift my arm. And then it got really bad. And you know how uh you know how we work the left arm in the States, you work the right arm in Mexico. Yes. Yeah. Right? So it was my right arm that, that got that got hurt. So I was like, look, you guys got to work the right arm because you can kick my leg, but I'm going to grab my right shoulder. You can kick my right arm or my left arm, but I'm going to grab my right arm, my right shoulder. You know, it doesn't matter what you do. I'm going to grab my right shoulder because I'm in a lot of pain. So you better work the shoulder, you know, work it because I'm going to grab it. I'm going to grab it anyway. And, uh, and so I already did. They, they, they worked the shoulder because I was going to grab the shoulder. They had to, they had to work Lucha Libre style. You know, work the right arm so that I could, you know, have a reason to be grabbing my right shoulder. Dean Malenko was really good at it. He, he had yeah. a really, really good time with that. And then, you know, it's sort of, you know, I needed some time off to to, to let the, – the options were I could get surgery or I could go to rehabilitation. And I chose rehab over surgery because both are going to be sort of – the end result was going to be about the same you know, timeline. I ended up uh, missing a lot, like a, a, almost a year. After that, and then I never, you know, I never got booked by uh, Johnny Ace. And then, you know, and a year later, Babasan passes away, and however, whatever year that was. And then, um, yeah, then for me, it was, so, well, I guess it's all over. And then I got pulled into things uh, out of uh, out of the Michigan Toledo area. And I uh, met um, Andy Shane uh, Graham, <laughs> Dr. Larry Graham. Uh, out of Toledo, and uh, they they pulled me back in. I started wrestling 
doing spot shows for Brian Costello, Larry Graham, uh, some of the independent groups out of there, and I started wrestling with. Uh, and it was just independent stuff. I was, I was just just doing it just, just to do it, you know. Bobo, Bobo Brazil Jr. Andy and Andy Shane, <laughs> and uh, it got to the point where I, I I I would I would somebody would call me and book me for a show and I'd say, well I only wrestle with Andy Shane's guy if I'm going to wrestle Andy Shane or Bobo, but I'm not going to wrestle anybody else. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you were actually a TV champion for IAW for a little bit, weren't you? Yeah. So uh, how, how smart is this show? Can I can I go full disclosure or what? Or go, right ahead. go right Go huh? right Go, uh, right. Speak, speak from the heart. All right. So, well, you know, I, I, I have uh, mixed feelings about K-Fed. I grew up defending this business. I grew up fighting in the schoolyard. You know, I, I grew up with kids going, oh, it's all fake. It's all fake. You know, it's all fake. It's all, it's all BS. And fighting, literally, you know, fist fights uh, growing up when I was seven years old, eight years old, nine years old, you name it. I fought all the way through high school, you know, anybody. You know that 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 got in. I fought, and so I get really really upset when guys just really start breaking kayfabe to 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 talk about things. So I'm not going to go fully into things, but um, the, the outcome of the match was supposed to be different. In in uh, I say Toledo, but what was the actual uh, South Bend? South Bend, South Bend, Indiana. I, I say Toledo, but it was Indiana South Bend. And that was for, that was Brian Costello's uh, show there. I was wrestling Andy Shane. It was a title match. And um, they, uh, they wanted to drop the belt, and I said, uh, no, I, I don't want the belt. And, I, and they said, well, we'll work, we'll work a really good angle. You take the belt, and, you know, this would be, this would be good, right? Coming from Japan and, uh, you know, wrestling out of Japan, and I was wrestling on the independent circuit. I was getting noticed a lot because <laughs> my bumps were bigger and louder and better than anybody else's there, and that's only because, <laughs> they drilled into drilled into me so hard by by the whole system over there, and so when you know when you took a hip toss or a, or a backdrop, you know I went flying. You know when I gave it, I went boom. You know the, the matches were crisper and cleaner and louder, and and they were more solid. You know you, you, it's a it's a much stiffer match, and Andy Shane likes wrestling that way. It's stiff, but it's safe. And Bobo is the same way. It's stiff, but it's good and solid and safe. And that's why I I only wrestled those guys. I don't want to get into in a match with some guy who I don't know, and and it's on an independent circuit, and I don't need to be risking uh, injury for for something that I'm just doing, you know, for fun, for basically. Yeah. Fun. So wrestling Andy, you know, they're like, look, you know, you, you're getting recognized, you're getting, you know, you, you're getting some, you know, some following. It'll be a really good thing to drop the belt to you, and we'll work a whole angle with it. And I was like, I don't want the belt. I don't. I don't want it. I don't want it. And um. So Andy's like, okay, well, you know, so we work out a finish, blah, blah, boom. And halfway through the match, you know, we're like 40, 40 minutes into a 45-minute match. We're getting right, you know, ready to, you know, sort of, you know, go home. And uh, I, I give Andy a suplex in the middle of the ring. I climb up the top rope. I give him a flying shoulder block. I go to cover him, and he's snoring loudly, like, <laughs> oh, snoring loudly. And I'm wow. like, oh, you gotta be kidding me, right? And so, and the, and the poor rest, some young guy, he's giving me this look, he's like totally paneling, what do we do? And, and, and he, cause he counts one, two, and Andy's snoring, and I pick Andy up before the guy can get to three, and I put him in a headlock. And, and, and so he's sitting down, and I'm up on one knee, 
And I'm like, what are you doing? And he's just snoring. He's not answering me. He's just snoring. And the kid's looking at me. The ref's looking at me like, what do we do? And I let Andy go, and he just falls back down to the ground, still snoring. And I said, well, change the plans. Count him out. So, well, one, two, three, boom, boom, boom. The place explodes. The whole place goes nuts. Like, oh, my God, the new champion, blah, 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 and everything goes. The whole, the, there was a, it's a AAA ballpark where, they, where he has the show. And it's a really great venue for, for wrestling matches. So then they come out, they give me the mic, you know, say something, you got to say something. The commissioner comes out, you, you got to say something. And I was just like, you know, I said something in name, like, you know, Danny Shane wants to get this belt back. He knows where to find me. And I dropped the mic and I left. I go all the way back to the dressing room. On the way back to the dressing room, going down the, uh, the hallway, Brian Costello's coming out. Costello looks at me and he goes, hey. And I got the belt over my shoulder. And he goes, ah, so we did drop the belt to you. And I was like, well, you know, if you guys were that hell bent on dropping the belt to me, you could have come up with a better finish than a flying shoulder block off the top row. You know, <laughs> you guys could have told me that this was that important to you. So I get back to the dressing room, and I'm sitting down, and, and Andy comes in, and he's sitting next to me. <clears throat> and he goes, Kurt, how you doing? I'm like, good, man. Said, how, how's the match? I didn't catch you with anything. But I said, no, everything was good. But, you know, if we're going to – you know, that hell bent on dropping the belt, we could come up with a better finish than a front shoulder block. I mean, come on now. And he, he takes his boot off, takes his knee pad off, his right boot and his right knee pad. And then he goes down a minute later. Now, we're both tired. I mean, it was a 45-minute match, right? And he puts his uh, knee pad back on, puts his boot back on, sits there, looks at me, and goes, hey, how you doing? Uh, I didn't catch with anything, did I? I said, no, no. This, you could have just worked and finished better, man. Said, yeah, no, everything was great. And that's, no, he didn't catch with anything. Takes his boot off, takes his knee pad off, puts his knee pad back on, puts his knee back on, looks at me and says, you good, huh? You okay? I didn't catch with anything, did I? I'm like, are you putting me on? Hi, is this a rib? And I'm looking at him, and he's not all there. Like, Ooh. he's not there. Like, I'm, for the first time, I'm looking at him. And he was, uh, and then somebody came and gave him a, a Gatorade. And he said that, and if you hear it from Andy, Andy's, uh, Andy said he didn't come to him until he was in the shower. Like, so somebody gave him a Gatorade. He, he, he drank that, and he had enough, you know, whatever electrolytes and some, and some carbs in the Gatorades. But when he was in the shower, he came to in the shower where he was like, what the hell am I doing in the shower? And then everything started coming back to him. He he remembers everything. Like he came to in the shower. And if you watch the video, like, I didn't see what was happening after I left the ring. Mm-hmm. And I saw Costello. Costello was coming out. He was going out to the ring. And he was still on the ground, on the mat in the ring when Costello came in. So Costello slides into the ring. Everybody thinks Andy was working. I thought he was working. He was snoring loudly. Of course I thought it was a rib. You know? And Costello picks him up. And you see it on the video. Walks into the rope. You know, and Andy's on the rope, and he's standing up, holding on to the rope, and Costello says to him, are you okay? You don't see it, you don't hear it on the video, but that's the conversation. And Andy goes, yeah, I'm fine. So Costello lets him go and turns around to go do something else in the ring, and Andy collapses down back to the ring. So Costello wow. thinks he's working still. He picks him up, stands him up, and goes, you're good to go? And Andy says, yeah, I'm fine. So he lets him go again, and Andy collapses again. So finally, Costello thinks he's working. So he goes, oh, okay, you want me to carry you all the way back to the dressing room? Okay. 
So he slides off, pulls Andy out, and he puts his shoulder, his arm over his shoulder, and he helps him all the way back to the dressing room. He's the one that, when Andy came into the dressing room, Costello was bringing him back to the dressing room. Everybody thought he was working. And Andy had three matches that day. He had other matches that day. And it was an afternoon show. It was a hot, hot show. Uh, Fedra was a really big drink for all the athletes in those days. And, and he had uh, a couple only He didn't eat anything the whole day. He only had uh, a couple bottles of Ephedra, and he had uh, three matches in the hot sun. So by the time he got to the main event, he was burnt up. And he literally, he remembers, in hindsight, he remembers saying something. To, he told the, he told the, he says that he told the ref, I'm going out. When he got up, I was coming off the top rope, and he told, he, he says he told the ref, I'm going out. He spun around, and and I came off the top rope. The timing was perfect. Like, he come around, he got up, and he turned around while I was in midair. And I caught him with the shoulder, and boom. It was perfect bump. It was perfect, right? Timing was awesome. But it was just by chance. <laughs> totally by chance. Because the suplex, when I suplexed him, he was already already spent. He was already done. He was already feeling himself getting really, really lightheaded. But if you ask Andy Shane uh-huh. what happened, Andy Shane says I clocked him coming off the top row. If you ask me what happened, and, yeah, and if you ask me what happened, Andy Shane saw a big man coming off the top rope and fainted. That's my story. I'm sticking to it. So yeah, that, that's how that's how that's my one and only championship, and it was because um, he literally passed out in the middle of the match. And they ended up dropping the belt to me, even though I had no intention of taking it. Now, may I ask, what was the family reaction when you all heard that Giant Baba had passed away? It's it's sadness. I mean, yes, Giant Baba didn't treat me well, and yes, uh, Matoka didn't treat anybody well, uh, and yes, Giant Baba was uh, not my friend, but Giant Baba was an, uh, a, a huge friend of my dad. Uh, they were they uh, they were a fixture of my life, uh, going all the way back to in my earliest memories. You know, I mean, I remember meeting hell. I remember meeting Matoka when I was 10 years old in Hawaii on that Round the World Tour. That was the first time for me to meet Matoko. And I and I think that might be the – no, yeah, it might have been the first time I met Giant Baba too. Um, it might have been the first time I met – no, I met Giant Baba in L.A. I remember meeting Giant Baba in L.A. when I was a really little kid. But I met Baba uh, in, again in uh, Hawaii when I was 10 years old and Matoka was there. And believe it or not, if anybody knows Matoko, she's kind of a true, you know, a horrible woman. But I, she was the kindest, nicest uh, woman I'd ever met, and she was the most beautiful woman I'd ever seen. And I remember thinking that at 10 years old, that, boy, you know, when I grow up, I'm going to marry a woman just like this. <laughs> and whatever happened to her throughout life, she ended up becoming this, you know, real mean person. And the meanness, you know, adds to, you know, Somebody's mean. They certainly don't look beautiful. You know what I mean? There's three points on the Richter scale right there, right? So no, she's not attractive. She's mean. But when when Babasan passed away, that was uh, a loss of a a legend. It was a a loss of one of my dad's oldest friends. Um, It was a loss to me because I was never able to bridge whatever gap there existed between Babasan and me. uh, That I was never able to gain its respect on any level. Uh, I consider that a, a personal failure, an absolute failure. Nobody would be proud of that. I'm not proud of that. As much as I feel I got a, an unfair shake, 
I did get a shake. I did get, he did let me come in. He gave me those last matches with my dad. You know, uh, should I have worked harder? Probably. I probably should have done a lot of things different. And the fact that I was never able to bridge that gap and, and come to some sort of um, level of respect from Baba's eyes, I consider a deep personal failure. And I regret it, and I will regret it to my dying day. Now, I realize you weren't there in, the, like, a part of it, but did you follow the whole split between All Japan and the boys who left to create NOAA? Yeah, I, I, I we, you know, we're, 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 all, we're all very aware of what was going on at the time. You know, I mean, if the social media didn't exist in those days, but the telephone did, you know, and, uh, and, and, and the boys talking to each other. I mean, before social media, there was telephone, telegraph, telewrestler, right? You know, that's the old <laughs> saying, right? Telephone, telegraph, telewrestler. That's how word gets from one side of the country to the other. And yeah, we, we, um, yeah, I was acutely aware of what was going on. Oh. Um, Masoko was, there... was running, uh, with was... an iron fist. Uh, and Misawa thought that, you know, he, he was the rightful, uh, next person to step in. I think, I think the mistake was following the business model of, of Giant Baba and Antonio Inoki. They were promoters and wrestler. They were the promoter and the wrestler. They were a, a, a player manager. You not always, just because you're a great player doesn't mean you're going to be a great manager. It doesn't mean that you, because you you can wrestle doesn't mean that you can be a, a good promoter. And a lot of the guys uh, ended up that followed all of them ended up using the position of president and promoter as a means to make sure that they were in the in the main events all the time. You know, on the main event, on the main event. What Baba did spectacularly well was that he was not the main event. He took himself out of the main event. Baba San was the the match before intermission, and so it was the semi main. It wasn't even called the semi main because the semi main was the the main before uh, the. The, there was a main event, semi-main, but his was, uh, it was like the, the, the mid, mid-main or whatever. But he found that it, it was better for him to have that match right before intermission because he could wrestle the match and go straight from the ring to the gimmick tables. And then everybody would pour out on the intermission and they would find Bob at the gimmick tables and, and, and then the gimmick tables would do a really, really, really good business. So it worked out well for him. And, and he, and he had that, that was a nice little niche that he carved out for him. So he was able to stay in the ring, but, you know, the, the stars, the main events, that was Misawa, that was Stan Hansen, those, those guys are the main events, not me. I'm not the main event anymore. And and that's what he did very well. But the guys that took over, Misawa ended up being the promoter and, you know, also the main event. Tragically, he died. Misawa was always good to me, even though I never, I, I never, he had nothing to do with me. He didn't have anything to do with my training. I didn't report to him. Um, I didn't have any, you know, real work-wise interaction with him other than just being on the same tour at the same time. But uh, he never, uh, he was always, he was always super nice and super helpful. He would, you know, he would offer, you know, tips now and then. Hey, Kurt, you might want to try something this way or that way, you know. And that was always, anytime somebody does that for you, goes out of the way to point out or give you a pointer, uh, it's, a, it's a huge favor because they don't have to. He was good that way. His loss was really bad. But I understand why he left. I understand why they all left. Do you still follow the product nowadays, either in Japan or in the United States? No. I'll follow Japan every now and then, but Japan has become so splintered and so... Americanized? Yeah, I, I mean, there were... 
there were two groups. There was All Japan and New Japan. Well, no, I take that back. There were there were like there was four, right? So there was All Japan, New Japan. There was uh, War, and then there was um, the uh, Onita's group. Um, oh yeah, Onita. Uh, yeah. FMW. Uh, what was Onita's? Well, they, yeah. <laughs> now the women wrestling in Japan, <laughs> they they had their own world. They and they were. Let me tell you something. You know, our girls. I don't. I I have very. Uh, I I as politically incorrect. I don't care. I don't have a whole lot of respect. But as I said, I do not have the level of respect for American women wrestlers that I do for most of the Japanese women wrestlers. Absolutely. The American women. The, the American women wrestlers are. Yeah, they can do the moves. But if they're not drop-dead gorgeous, they're never getting in the ring. Right? If they're not Swedish bikini models, they're never getting in the ring. So the American, I mean, there's a certain burlesque. I say, you know, the American, you know, women wrestling in Japan, uh, in the States, is all about TNA, and that's it. Let's be honest. Let's put cards on the table and say what it is. But there's a certain amount of that for men, too. Right? Dad always says a certain burlesque quality about, uh, about professional wrestling. You know, there's a, there's a certain burlesqueness to it. That that just exists. It's going to exist, and you got to be aware of it and work with it, and you know try to profit from it somehow. So I don't uh, hold it against any woman wrestler in the states for for getting in the ring and working, and they do work hard. Don't just because I, I say they don't have the same level of respect is that they they just not they're not doing what they're doing. You know, Luna Luna Vachon, and that day those days, Luna Vachon, Sherry Martel, those that early days. Those girls worked their butts off. They 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 did take big hits. They did work really hard. They did. Those girls went to Japan and wrestled Japanese wrestling, and they did good at it. They Medusa they Michelli. could walk the walk, right? Pardon? Medusa Michelli too. She she actually yes. trained. All of those, all of the Medusa, all of those. That that era, it's like the pre WWE era. Those girls could all work their butts off, and they did a good job of it. And the, the women's wrestling in Japan was so brutal. I remember we would they would be on really late at night, like one o'clock in the morning, and we would watch the boys. <laughs> I would be with all the Japanese boys, our wrestlers. We would watch women's wrestling, and somebody would watch a move that they didn't go, "Oh, whoa!" And then the next day we were doing it in our ring. <laughs> we were getting we were getting you know moves from them. The best wrestling match I ever saw in my life. And I've seen thousands. I mean, and I'm including, and I'm including my dad. I'm including all my dads. And it was with um, uh, Hokusto and Kanbori. That Hokusto. Dream Slam one. Yep, that's my uh, April second, nineteen ninety three. That's my favorite women's match of all time as well. That. That, but that's my favorite pro wrestling match of all time, hands down. It's the greatest professional wrestling match I've ever seen. It starts off with a punch to the face that's. That it's not a work punch because there's a little there's a little soft thud. It's not a big slap. Boom, and it starts from there. And it and at no point in that match and at no point with all of the false finishes back and forth did you know who was going to go over. No, there and the finishes no... came out of nowhere too. Yep, and it was you know by the time you know Hokuto you know was uh, time already uh, pile drives Hokuto into the top of the table, splits her head open. And that was a shoot split too, you know. That was a that wasn't a that wasn't a blade. That was a shoot split. Boom, right? And you know there was there was a lot of blood, um, and and they 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 worked hard. At no point, when when you're watching a wrestling match with a wrestler, 
and they're watching the match. doesn't matter who's in the ring. And the wrestler goes, ooh, or ah. You know, you know that something good is going on in that ring. That's the way I feel about that entire match from start to finish. At no point was the greatest wrestling match I've ever seen. So, yeah, the girls were, the girls were, girls were different. I'm sorry, no, I went off on a tangent on you. I'm sorry, man. Uh, no, don't even worry. That's <laughs> cool to see that side of you. Now, can you let us know what you do with your life nowadays? I work for uh, a tech company. Um, we make uh, high-speed data transfer components for really large computer systems. Um, and some of the market verticals that we sell into, um, we, we sell into uh, spaces that are using massive amounts of digital storage. So um, uh, the financial industry, um, uh, databases, uh, you know, we sell into like the Yahoo databases, Facebook. You know, they, they have massive amounts of servers, massive amounts of storage. And ours are like these uh, these connectors, the, these these cards and these uh, these heads that are, are like, you know, uh, these data transfer components that, that we make that are super fast, super high performance. And one of the market verticals is uh, media and entertainment. My... My um, my major in college was broadcasting. My hmm. my 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 original plan out of college was to I wanted to be an actor. <laughs> I wanted to be an actor, but I didn't want to be a waiter waiting around to be an actor. I loved everything about television and radio production, everything about it. And so um, I wanted to get in the back door. I wanted to get, get into that industry from the back door. And so I studied uh, uh, television and radio production, and then I got a, a degree in broadcasting from the University of San Francisco, which at the time, KUSF Radio, USF, KUSF Radio was the number one uh, uh, college radio station in the country, and it was the number one uh, new music station in the Bay Area. And uh, it, was, it was a really big deal. It was really high speed, and that's what I was going to do. When I got out of college, went back to Japan, uh, for summer vacation, and there's a long story, but the short version is I ended up getting a job in a newspaper in print media instead. And I ended up staying in print media up until I, you know, went out through the ad agency on and on into pro wrestling. But skip ahead to now, um, my understanding of the workflow, at least for media and entertainment and video production, even though it's not analog, understanding that, you know, the, the cameras are capturing the footage and they got to offload that footage into, you know, X, Y, and Z systems and that footage has to be processed and we're going to go through an editing system. That editing system is going to include uh, color age, uh, uh, you know, color and all kinds of different effects and everything else that's connected to it. And then the final product's put up, then you go into the archiving and then it goes all the way through to distribution, you know, broadcast and distribution. And at every point in that workflow, we have connectors that we sell into. So my knowledge of business in Japan um, and my fluency in Japanese, uh, I was able to, in fact, I found the only job in Buffalo. I moved back to Buffalo to be closer to my dad because he was getting up there in years and I wanted to be around to be able to help take care of him. I found the only job in Buffalo that was looking for uh, somebody who spoke Japanese and it happened to be for a tech company that was falling into one of the market verticals that I versed in. So I ended up getting a pretty good position here. Now, um, would you care to tell the listeners about the golf course your dad has in the Buffalo area, how to support yeah, it the product, and the products like that amazing bobblehead that I got at Cauliflower Alley? <laughs> the bobblehead. All right. So there's, there's, a two, well, there's two different stories. But uh, my dad, my dad, God bless him, you know, uh, uh, he's a, not always the best businessman, you know, from a business standpoint, but he's an incredibly successful man. 
and he's successful at um, uh, self-promotion. He's successful at wrestling. He's successful at that go-getter, you know, personal effort. You know, I'm going to kind of put effort in and get effort out. And, you know, pro wrestling, especially the early days, you had to be a go-getter. You had to be a person who was really good at self-promotion. Otherwise, you were never going to get noticed. You weren't going to work your way up the food chain unless you were willing to fight for it. You know, and, and uh, all of the fundraising activities that my dad's been involved with here, you know, he, he gets involved with a lot of fundraising, a lot of different causes, people that get hurt or have leukemia or have whatever. He gets involved. He wants to bring his wrestling team to Japan or a swim team to Japan. You know, they, they get involved in these fundraising activities. I was always really good at it because that's also part of promotion and getting the word out and doing all of that. But then he, he, he sometimes he has these one-off things that, I'm going to uh, – bobbleheads. Everybody has bobbleheads, so I'm going to do bobbleheads now. So he got up to this bobblehead kick, and, you know, the, the, the whole process to, to get the bobbleheads made, get the cast made, the, the artwork that went back and forth, and, you know, the, the, the hands raised up in the air with that bobblehead, um, it, it's, it's, uh, it, they, they don't sell like pancakes, but everybody who has one loves it. You know what I mean? It was one of those things of like, Dad, you don't want to do that. That's how you teach him bobblehead, and he loved it. And so he did it. And the bobblehead, they finally came out with the bobblehead. And um, like you said, like, we you know, we don't, you know, it's not uh, the, the quickest selling item because nobody goes out looking for a bobblehead. But everybody who has one loves it. They cherish it. And uh, they should because there's, we're not making any more. And there's only, we, we did one, we, had, we, we did one production run for the bobblehead. When you, Commissioning these things to get made, you have to commit to a certain number, and then we, we committed to that that number, that one production run, and, and that's it. So, and I doubt that we're going to do it again. I don't even know if they can. It's been so long since the first molds were were, were made. I did the six five podcast um, right after I got back from Cauliflower Alley, and I was just raving about this bobblehead. I mean, honestly, in between us, this is worth a lot more than twenty dollars. This is quality. This is like one of the best bobbleheads that I've ever seen in my life. And, you know, then you get a, a free signature on it from, from your dad. I mean, that's... I yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really it's a really great product. It is, it is you, you're correct. It, it's, it's underpriced. Uh, it's under, it's, it's, it's a really great value as a memento. Um, it's very fragile because it's, it's made with real plaster, right? So it's not like a plastic, it's not plastic. You yeah. know, it's, uh, you know, so it's, uh, it's, it is a, it is a neat bobblehead, and everyone I have friends in Japan like bar, there's a there's bars and businesses in Japan that have bobbleheads that he gave them I don't know 20 years ago that still have it they're still like oh it's my bobblehead you know it's you know however long ago you know 15 years ago or however long it was they they, they love it but the uh, park golf is was invented in Japan I'll, I'll tell you about the destroyer park golf course. That was one of his business adventures that I think was uh, on a, a really brilliant side. That's at DestroyerParkGolf.com, correct? That's correct, Destroyer Park Golf. Now, my sister, uh, Mona Chris Byer-Jones, uh, is the owner and operator of it. It's actually her business, but it was my dad's brainchild. It's my, my sister's uh, investments, her business, her husband, her and her husband, Chris Jones, designed and built the course uh, under the guidelines of the Park Golf Association of Japan. and um, But it was my dad's brainchild and my dad's dream to bring Park Golf to the United States. So Park, my dad, going back into the 70s when my dad was at the peak of his career in Japan, he'd wrestle all over Japan. And my dad brought us golf clubs on the bus all the time. Babasan 
and my dad kept their golf clubs on the bus, on the team bus. And um, when it, wherever they traveled, if they had time for a round of golf, Bauer and my dad would go out and play golf. And my dad would go to Hokkaido, and they would play golf in Hokkaido. Well, there's a couple of um, sponsors in Hokkaido that my that were friends with my dad. They wanted to host a destroyer golf tournament in, in Hokkaido, and they they held it for 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 charity, and it was a huge event, huge. Uh, and the first couple events, uh, some of the Japanese pro golfers also came, like Jumbo and those guys came. Mm-hmm. And um, not Jumbo Tsuduka, but Jumbo, uh, I don't know his last name offhand, a pro golfer at the time. Those guys would come and, and make an appearance. And they had that one every year, uh, the Destroyer Park Golf, uh, the Destroyer Golf Tournament. Well, after my dad retired and all those, you know, that core group of golfers and fans that would come out to this event every year, you know, they, we got older and older, and, you know, they didn't have the event. And one day he's up there, and one of his friends took him out to play this game called park golf. And park golf was invented in Hokkaido by a, uh, a, a small group of older golfers that couldn't play golf anymore. It was too taxing on their bodies. So they're older. They, you know, they, they, it's, it's too much for them to play 18 holes. And the courses in in Japan, they're really hilly. You know, there's a lot of walking up and down, going to get your ball. It's just too much of a, too much of a strain on their bodies. And but they missed the, the golf part. And they said, well, what if we could make a, a game that, you know, was like a smaller game that you could play in like a local park, like gate ball or croquet, but better, like more like golf. And they came up with this game where you have, you know, it's played with one club. So in a sense, it's kind of like gate ball or, 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 or croquet, but the club looks like a, a golf head driver. It's got a shorter, stocky club, more like a mallet, but the head, it faces like a, a, a driver. And the ball is a larger, hard plastic ball, and the holes are eight inches in diameter. And uh, the average length of the hole is about 67 yards. According to the, to, uh, the guidelines and rules of park golf, uh, the total distance of nine holes can't add up to more than 500 meters, so it's like 500 yards. So they can't add up to more than 500 yards. And the longest hole can't be longer than 100 yards. So with that in mind, some of the holes are shorter, some of them are 100, but on average it's about, you know, 60, 70 yards per hole. So you can whack this ball pretty hard and go 70 yards, and then you got to putt with that same club into that eight-inch cup, and you play two sets of nine holes. So it's still one round of park golf is 18 holes. And he wanted to bring this back to the States. He thought it was a really great, great idea for the United States, and there wasn't any park golf course in the United States. And by this time in Japan, there's already, I don't know, 1,500 or 2,000 park golf courses. So we started talking to the Japan Park Golf Association and they gave us what all the criteria uh, were to, to build a park golf course and be certified and recognized by the Japan Park Golf Association. Nice. And um, they came back and they're, you know, my my sister's husband took it took a year and a half, almost two years to build the course because you had my dad's got a lot of land in upstate New York here, and um, uh, he leases it out to local farmers who grow corn or or alfalfa or you, know, you name it. But uh, they took, uh, you know, a segment away uh, to make this park golf course, and they had to make it smooth, and they had to make it, 
you know, you have to put different types of uh, soil on it, and they had to put grass. You know, they don't have the budget to go buy sod and, and put over, so you have to plant the grass, and it has to be a certain type of grass, and it has to come in so that it's nice and lush like a, like a golf course, like, like a park golf course, because you're taking mm-hmm. a field, and now you're going to turn it into a golf course. So, you know, Dad thought he could just do it in one season. It's like, no, this is going to take a couple of seasons of the first round of grass seedlings that grew up are going to look like this, and we're going to fix this, and we're going to fix that. And, and it's going to, so it took two years to be able to, to build the course, and, and my sister's husband is responsible for building it. And um, he worked with the local golf courses, and the groundskeepers at those golf courses gave him a lot of tips and taught him how to, how to build a golf course right. And uh, in the end, we ended up with the Story Park Golf, and the Japan Park Golf Association came over to bless it and make sure that, you know, that we are now the very first and only officially certified park golf course in North America. Wow. Um, I have a friend that just quickly inboxed me and wanted me to ask you if you know this answer. Do you know why Vern wanted your dad to be Dr. X? Yeah, I know. I know exactly why. So dad... Dad was, uh, you know, wrestling in L.A., right? And uh, the Destroyer at that time was already main event, big name. And and in those days, wrestlers would wrestle in a territory for a couple of years and then move to another territory because it gets stale, you know, works its way out, and you move to a different territory. And when you go to a different territory, you're going to be in that territory for another two or three years, and then you move to another territory. When I was growing up, it was a really migratory lifestyle. You know, the, you live in one place for one or two years, and he moved to another place. And then he might go back to the same place, and now he's coming back for another two years. And that was just the way it was in those days. It wasn't coast-to-coast broadcasting. We didn't have cable TV. It was only local stations and local broadcasting. And the only way you could find out what was going on in wrestling in L.A. was through the magazines. Now, wrestling magazine would tell you what was going on out there. You never saw footage of it. You know, nobody ever saw anything like that. There's no reruns in those days. Mm-hmm. And... um it was getting towards, the, you know, the end of my dad's run in L.A., and Vern Garnier wanted my dad to wrestle for him in uh, Minneapolis. But what he didn't want was the Destroyer because Vern had a really big ego. His ego was huge. <laughs> Vern was one of those wrestler promoters. I'm the promoter. This is my territory. I'm the main event. It's my show. And my dad, he, was a, he, he didn't want to be upstaged by my dad. And he flat out told him, look, I don't want to be upstaged by the Destroyer. The story is too big a name. I need you. I need your talent, but I don't need that name. I don't want that name. I don't want that name to ruin what I'm trying to do here. And so you're going to wrestle as Doctor X. And and ah. you know, my you know so my dad came up with a there was a different mask. They had to do a different mask in a different costume so somebody you know couldn't recognize that it was a destroyer. There were people. There were writers back in those days that didn't know. <laughs> That it was a, that it was one and the same. And there were writers that were like, hey, we should have a match between Dr. X and the Destroyer. You know, <laughs> that sort of thing. And, uh, and then at the end, you know, Dr. X was, you know, right, dad did what he always did. I mean, he was a really good wrestler. He was a really good showman. He did things nobody ever did. He thought, he just did things naturally that no, no wrestlers ever thought about. He would do things like, he would get behind the camera at the studio, the TV, the TV camera. He took over the, he would walk out and take the, he'd take over control of the camera from the TV, and they, they would be taping. There was TV taping day. They were in the studio with the wrestling ring in the, in the studio crowd, and Dad would walk out, and he'd take the camera out, my dad, and then the other camera would go, hey, it's Dr. X filming this, right? Yeah. That wasn't written into the script. It was stuff that he just did, you know? And it just, 
it just snowballed, you know. And in the end, you know, before you knew it, Dr. X was as big in Minneapolis as Destroyer was in L.A. <laughs> you know, and the exact, the, exactly what Vince didn't want, I mean, um, uh, Virginia didn't want. And uh, and after two years in Minneapolis, it was time for us to, to get out of Minneapolis. And we went traveling around the world in that day. And Dak figured out that he could wrestle in uh, a whole bunch of different countries. So he scheduled matches in Hawaii, New Zealand, Australia, uh, Japan, uh, and Germany. And then um, figured out a way to visit all these different countries. He was like, I could work. We could see the world. And I could wrestle around the world. And for somebody who's, for a man who hated hippies and is a total jock, uh, we lived a pretty bohemian lifestyle. <laughs> he'll never admit it, but he's a hippie at heart. You know, <laughs> he'll never admit it. He's a hardworking jock. Oh, I got long hair hippies. But, you know, Dad liked to travel and he liked to meet people. And he liked to, you know, Dad always judged people uh, by their character, never by their color. You know, now he's the most politically incorrect person, but there's no malice behind it at all. Zero. He doesn't, he gets confused when you say, but dad, if he sees, like he'll, he'll do something. We go to the hospital, like uh, I've taken the hospital, right? And, and, uh, uh, one of the, one of the nurses or the doctors, you know, if the nurse or doctor is black, my dad will go, oh, you know Boba Brazil. Let me tell you a story about Boba Brazil. And I'm like, dad, you can't do that. You can't, in this day and age, you can't do that. People take offense to that. You know, you're telling me a story about a black wrestler because I'm black. That's considered offensive. And Dad just looks at me like I got a hole in my head. Like, you're an idiot. Of course he's going to like it. You know? It's yeah. hell. You know? There's no malice behind it. And there's a difference between being conscious of race and being critical of race. There's a big difference. Yeah. And, and, and we've come to the point in our country where even conscious, being conscious of race is, being, is considered being critical of race, and that's just not true. We're conscious of all kinds of things. I'm conscious of a guy who's redhead and he's from uh, Ireland. I'm conscious of the fact that I'm fat and other people are fat or skinny or tall or wears glasses or wears braces. You're conscious of all kinds of superficial facts about people, including where they might be from or, or what nationality they might be or what, what background they might have, what color they are, what creed they are, what religion, right? We, we, we're conscious of these things, but it's whether you're holding it against somebody. You know, so as politically incorrect as he is, he's completely devoid of malice to anybody. And for somebody who, who um, he, was, he, was, he was my, he taught me from a very early age that, you know, you, you, you judge a person by character alone. That's it. Mm -hmm. That's it. And, um, again, another tangent, another rabbit hole I went down. Um, what was my first, what was your original question, Roy? What, what do I come back to? <laughs> no worries, no worries. Um, you no, 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 no. There's a point. I, I swear there was a point. I, I swear to God there was a point. And somebody listening is going, like, that was the question. Uh, um, just, what was it about the Dr. X thing? That, that's all. Well, oh, no, it was just traveling around the world. I'm sorry. Oh, okay, so when yeah. we left, he, 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 when we left, so that part of going around the world was part of his desire to want to go out and see other people, other cultures. And that was that was my earliest part of my, you know, adult consciousness was when I was around 10. And Dad telling me, you know, at a very early age, you're going to go in different places in the world. You're going to have different cultures and different ways of, of living. And you, you appreciate that. You, you know, that's how they live. We live this way, they live that way. 
we look at it and say, well, they're strange. They look at us and say, well, we're strange. There's no right or wrong. You know, there's, there's, you know, you make sure that you're judging people on character. So as we went and wrestled from uh, different countries, he made sure we visited in between as many countries as we possibly could. We went all the way. We went Fiji. You know, New Zealand was the best. Uh, Australia was just a vacation. We were supposed to wrestle in Australia at, for a couple of months and uh, wrestle in New Zealand just for like a week, a couple of weeks. So we were supposed to, only supposed to be in New Zealand for a couple of weeks, but the promoter in Australia <coughs> decided along the same lines that uh, that Vern Gagne did. I, I don't want this guy coming here and upstaging me, so never mind. I don't want you coming to Australia. So he canceled uh, the trip at the last minute, and we were already in New Zealand. We were already a whole family. My dad, my mom, three kids, a 10-year-old, a 7-year-old, and a 2-year-old. Can you imagine? A 7-year-old, a 10-year-old, and a 2-year-old living out on a suitcase for a full year on the road. Other parents that don't even want to take their kids to Disneyland for the week, you know, let alone go on the road for 52 weeks, a full year. And here we are in, in New Zealand, and the promoter in Australia pulled the plug on him. So he worked with Steve Rickard and the promoters in, in New Zealand. He said, look it. I, I, I got I got to pay. I, I, I have, I can, if you let me run your shows, you let me promote the shows, you let me, I'll put seats in you. And they were, they were struggling in New Zealand. And, and at the end of the day, he was making good money. He was making good money in New Zealand. Every week we made, I don't know, 2,000 a week, something like that. Crazy money for New Zealand. It's those days. We're talking 1970. It was crazy money. It was unbelievable, and it was selling out. He did sell-out houses every, every, like, they wrestled uh, a couple of times a week, two or three nights a week, right, in and around New Zealand, down in Auckland and stuff. And he, and he, and he did it by, we'd go and he walked through the newspaper with his wife and three kids wearing a mask. I'm, I'm the destroyer. I'm here wrestling, you know, and very serious, straight, straight shooter, boom. And he wrestled like he didn't walk in. He didn't do the wrestling gimmick. He walked into the thing. I want to hear about the show that I'm going to do down in Auckland. I'm here with my family. I'm here to, to take on Steve Rickard. I'm going to blah, 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 blah. I'm here from the United States. And they ate it up. They're like, oh, my God. You know, this guy's the real deal. He's just, you know, straight sure. He's talking our talk. He's, you know, he's not coming in with a stupid gimmick. You know, and they went out and had good matches. At the end of the day, the word that he got from Australia when the guy said, you know, I don't want you to come. He's like, I don't need you. I don't need you. Well, the guys in Australia heard what they were doing in New Zealand. New Zealand was selling out every week, week after week after week. We were there for three months, almost three months. I went to school there. It was the only time I liked going to school. I went to school in Oriwa, Oriwa, New Zealand. And uh, I love that. I love Oriwa, New Zealand. I love it. it, was a, it now it's all built up. It's a, it's a big resort area. But in those days, it was a sweepy little beach town, you know, cottages by the beach. And I had, I was, uh, I was, I, I rented a surfboard from the local surf club up the, up the beach, and I surfed every single day, rain or shine. I go, I go to school in the morning. I surf every day. I loved living there, and even Dad was, I, lo- I, I could have lived in New Zealand forever. I loved it there. I loved New Zealand. Of all the places we went, I loved New Zealand the most. I loved living there. I loved the, I loved my friends in New Zealand. were really cool, and Dad, we had a great, we had a great life there. You know, I, it doesn't get any better than that. You're living, you know, you're living. Uh, 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 right by the beach, you're going to school with people that are really fun to go to school with. You're coming home, you're surfing. Yeah, I'm by myself. I don't care. I had all the waves for myself every single day, right? And Dad was making good money. It was life was great, 
And the guys in Australia heard how good they were doing in New Zealand, and all of a sudden they changed their tune. <laughs> they got a hold of my dad and said, okay, we're ready. We opened up the spot. We're ready for you to come to Australia. Are you ready to come to Australia? And dad said, I don't need you. <laughs> I'm not going. Shoot. And so when we, when we did go to Australia just for vacation, we went to a, a resort island, you know, uh, off the coast of Australia called Brampton Island. That was a really cool, nice little resort area. It's almost like Fantasy Island, I swear. I swear to God, Brampton Island is like Fantasy Island. I watched that show in the Senate. It's like, hey, I've been there. <laughs> we were there for two weeks. And uh, that time, we stopped in Sydney and uh, or Melbourne, wherever the big city was at town, in Sydney. And Dad made a point of going to the wrestling matches with his mask on, went to the front gate, bought a ticket, went inside, watched the matches with his mask on, and left. Just so he could show the guys in Australia, yeah, I was here, USOB. I was here. I came to your show. I could have wrestled for you. I chose not to. And he never went back to Australia. Never, he never forgave him for pulling the strings on, on, a committed, on a committed booking, leaving us stranded with a family and three kids in New Zealand. Thank God Steve Rickard and those guys in New Zealand stepped up and took care of everything. You know, they were like, yeah, you can promote this, you can do it, we trust you, you do it. And he, and he, and he turned New Zealand into an awesome territory. It was a really great, really great time for everybody. Awesome. And so yeah, you, you when, when we went around the world, when we came back, you know, it was just, uh, it, he left in Ghana. It was time to leave because, you know, there was already tension between Dr. X and Ghana. He hadn't had his next big territory booked yet. He decided, okay, I'm going to go on the road for a year. That was our first time. My first time through Japan was that year, 1970. Two years later, in 72, we were there full time and forevermore. That leads into my next question perfectly. You still visit Japan nowadays. What do you think it is about Japan that attracted the Bayer family for so many decades? Japan, I know a lot of people who've gone to Japan for a one-year stint and ended up staying there for 10 years. It just, the country has something that, that, that it has a way of sucking you in. Is it a utopia? No. But, you know, a lot of countries affect people a different way. Even people that go to France, oh, I love France, I'm going to live here forever. Oh, I love Italy, I'm going to live here forever. Japan, to me, it just, it just struck a chord with us. And it, um, you know, when we were living there, uh, when my dad was living there, and, you know, that was a really big deal. So it was, you know, we were always the destroyer's kids. I, I had a lot of uh, privilege because I was the destroyer's kid. A lot of doors were open for me, you know. Uh, I got out of speeding tickets a lot when I was in high school because the cops would find out, oh, you're the destroyer's a set of questions that the police had to ask you, you know. You know, what are you doing here? I'm a student. You know, your parents work here? Yes. What's your father's company's name? And you write stuff down on these things, you know. Now, my father works for All Japan Pro Wrestling. Oh, what is he, a wrestler or something? Yeah, he's one of the wrestlers. Yeah, what's his name? Uh, you probably don't know him, but his name is a destroyer. Well, I know they know him, but you, you know, you have to play, you have to play humble, otherwise they're never going to let you off. If you go out and say, my father's a destroyer, you better let me go. They're going to screw you, kid. You know, but you know, if you're, if you're nice and humble and apologetic a little bit, about it, they're like, oh, the destroyer. Oh, well, all right, I'll let you go this time, but, you know, slow it down and stuff. I got out all the time. And then later on, when my parents got divorced in Japan, my mother ended up staying there and ended up teaching at my old high school. She taught architectural design at my old high school in Japan and um, and stayed there until she retired. And she ended up just staying in Japan. She loved it. My dad came back. I went back after university uh, for summer vacation and ended up getting a job working newspaper and then subsequently with the uh, ad industry. 
and I ended up living there and working there for another 15 years. Um, and then I found a job here in, in Buffalo, and I go to Japan probably four or five times a year for work. So I love it. I love going to Tokyo. There's something about there's something about Tokyo. You know, Tokyo is truly the city that never sleeps. You know, there's you know people say oh, New York's a city that never sleeps. No, no, no. Try getting a beer and a meal at three o'clock or four o'clock in the morning in New York City. You can't find it. You can get a drink and a meal at any time of the day in Japan, 24 hours a day. If you can buy, if you can get a beer and a meal 24 hours a day, to me that's truly uh, a city that doesn't sleep. Then you add to that the mass transportation system that's built in place and the ease of getting around town, and the just the there's like if you don't like big cities, you might not like Tokyo, but if you if you're more of a country person, Japan's countryside is beautiful. You know, there's a lot about Japan. There's a lot of character to Japan. But this Japanese who come to the states and say the exact same thing about us. You know, like oh my God, I, I went to the states as an exchange student. I loved America so much. I just stayed here. I wish we lived in one world. I wish we lived in a world that didn't have borders, that didn't have freedom of movement, you know. Yeah. I, I'm, I, I, but we don't live in that world. Well, let's, you know, so I won't. I don't live in that world. So while we do have borders and while we do have, um, you know, uh, laws, I think that anybody who comes to anybody's country should respect the laws of that country. And that means that if you're going to come to America, uh, you, you should be legal. You should have a legal status. If you're coming here illegally, then you should expect to be deported. You know, should it should it be uh, a nasty, mean, hard system? No, you should be able to set up a system that you could bring people here illegally, but they can be here. So I am for um, uh, you know some sort of um, uh, you know uh, enforcement of our immigration laws. I grew up with that. I grew up. I lived in Japan for 20 years. And I had to renew my visa every single year for 20 years. And, yeah, the first year when I was a little kid, you know, my parents' visa, it was easy for my dad to get a visa. He was a destroyer. But it's not hard to get a visa in Japan as a worker. It shouldn't be hard to get – you have to be sponsored by a company. There has to be a company that needs you there. They have to have a reason to have you there. There's paperwork involved. There's paperwork involved in the process. They make the application to the immigration and the office. They say, okay, you're approved. Here, sir, here's your visa. Let me stamp your passport. There you go. Welcome to Japan. There isn't any reason that they can't do that here. They do it to every other country in the world. You can't just go across the border. And so, yeah, I, I, but I do wish we didn't live in a world like that. I wish we lived in a world where you could just go and live wherever you wanted, whenever you wanted. Now, for Christmas last year, my mother-in-law got me the book Mass Decisions. It's honestly one of the best wrestling books that I've ever read. Um, what is? Well, that's really nice of you to say. Thank you very much, Roy. He worked really hard on that book, and so did Vince Evans, uh, the, the, the co-writer. Yeah, I, I absolutely love the book. I love the detail of the book. Can you tell us a little bit about the book and how to order the book? Yeah, um, the, you can order the book from uh, thedestroyer.com. Uh, you can go to the, uh, the, the store there, or you can go to Amazon. You can go to Amazon.com and order the book straight from Amazon. Either way is fine. It's a, it's a book. Dad's written uh, three books over the years, and two of them are in Japanese. Uh, well, one, the first one in Japanese was uh, more about uh, his his uh, whole interaction with Ricky Dozen and all of that, and it's a lesser-known book. And then he wrote another book uh, in Japan, and uh, I forget what the Japanese title is. I should know that. Uh, something I should know offhand. But um, anyway, that book was uh, more or less a Japanese version of, 
mass decisions. It does go into a little bit of his early years in college and how he got through college and football and how he got into pro wrestling. And in the Japanese version, there's um, uh, pages that we were in, uh, we were asked to write. So there's a little section that my sister was asked to write. There's a little section for uh, Wilma. And then uh, they, uh, like what I wrote, uh, they gave me, I don't know, a dozen pages. <laughs> there's 12 pages of, of the book that are, of their, uh stuff that I wrote for the book. And they translated that into Japanese, and that did very well in Japan. And Dad wanted to have that book um, translated for the U.S. market. But in the course of the translation, uh, Vince Evans, uh, the, the, the writer, um, worked with Dad and, and explored a couple of different ways. And so the, the U.S. mass decisions is a slightly different version of the book. The only thing about mass decisions that I wish we had more of was pictures. I wish there were more pictures in there. But I, I wish that of all books. Every time I, every time, I mean, it's the same thing I say about everybody's book. It doesn't matter whose book I read, I wish there were more pictures. <laughs> well, Kurt, I cannot thank you enough for your time on here. Uh, this, honestly, to me, this was solid gold. Um, is I, I, uh, I, I, I know I, I'm, I'm really long-winded. I hope uh, people didn't get too bored uh, with my no story. Uh, I don't mind ever talking about wrestling. Uh, as you can see, I can talk for hours on it, um, and, and I think people can. I think people can talk for hours on any subject that they love and that they're passionate about. It doesn't matter what that subject is. And, and, and you know, for me, pro wrestling has been my life since I was, since I was born. So long, since I was literally born, pro wrestling has been part of my life. Any final words for the listeners out there? Thank you very much for spending time with us. Roy, I really appreciate uh, your time, and I appreciate everything you do, brother. Uh, I appreciate you coming on the show, honestly. When I met you at Cauliflower Alley and we talked for what seemed like, it, you know, it went by too quickly. And it was like I could have <laughs> sat there and talked to you. I could have talked to you for, you know, hours on end and stuff in that nostalgia room. So I just wanted to thank you personally because you are the inspiration of me wanting to reach out to all the gaijins and get your personal stories. So thank you very much for that, Kurt. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I'm glad that you uh, uh, thought highly enough of me to include me in your show. Really, well. Absolutely. thank you. Absolutely, Kurt. Um, and as they would say in Japan, domonagatsu gozaimasu. Yep. All right. Thank you so much, Kurt. Thank you, Roy. Hello. This is professional comedy wrestler Kiku Taro from Osaka, Japan. <laughs> you are listening Japanese wrestling classic with... Roy Lucier. Bye. Well, there you have it, wrestling fans. There's a three-hour interview that I conducted with Kurt Beyer, the son of the legendary destroyer, Dick Beyer. A lot of information there, a lot of things that personally I had never heard before, stories about the the uh, training, the dojo, the wrestlers uh, behind the scenes, all kinds of great stuff there, and I really hope everyone there uh, that's listening enjoyed the show today. Um, lots more to come. Uh, by the way, I just wanted to make it known to everybody that we do officially have a sponsor for the show, and that is Collar and Elbow. Uh, you can check out their clothing brand at collarandelbowbrand.com. Uh, I got a couple shirts from them, and I must say, you know, there's the normal T-shirt, and then there's this T-shirt. 
you know, the logos aside for a second, the quality of shirts here are amazing. They really are like silky smooth. Like, it's, I realize I, I sound like a, a model here by saying this, but this is the goddamnest truth here. These shirts are really, really quality stuff. Um, use the promo code Japanese Wrestling Classics when you check out, and you will get 10% off of your order. Once again, that's Japanese Wrestling Classics. They'll ask you to put that in when you check out, like right before, and you put that in there, and you do get 10% off of your order. Uh, other than that, enjoy the rest of your day, everyone. Thank you for uh, – I know it's been three weeks since I last released the show. I tried to do the after one a little early because he talked about the event that was about to happen, so I kind of felt – you know, I wanted to help him out, obviously, and get that out there in case there was a couple listeners that didn't know about the event. Uh, but other than that, enjoy the rest of your day, everyone, and we'll be back soon with another edition of Japanese Wrestling Classics with Roy Lucian.